Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this Thursday, January 4th, 2018 edition of the Hagman Report. we got a fantastic show for you today, uh, jam-packed with information and guests. First segment, we are going to cover news with my father and myself. In the second segment, we got a, a awesome guest, Shirin Nishat. She is an expert on Iran, and she's going to be giving us the information probably that you don't hear from the media as to what's really going on with the Iranian protest and what she sees as uh, the solution or the conclusion of what will happen uh, with these protests. And we're going to find out in what direction the country, at least the citizens of the country, want to go from here. Then we will be joined by Peter Barry Chauka from 8 to 9. He's coming on to talk about a number of things. Excuse me, starting with his latest piece on Hagman Report about the Robert Mueller grand jury looking like a Bernie, Bernie Sanders rally. And that's a, a great story that's still up there on, on Hagman Report. And a number of other things we're going to be getting into with him followed. And, uh, finally, in our number three, Phil Haney is going to be joining us. He, uh, is an author who's been on before, uh, See Something, Say Nothing. So it's going to be a really informative, jam-packed show. And let's start with the economy. We have seen the Dow Jones hit an historic mark for the first time ever. The 25,000 mark is what was hit today. And this is a a milestone. Really, it is. For the first time in history, the Dow Jones jumped past 25,000. And it was also the index's fastest run to a fresh 1,000-point milestone in history. And we have seen this trend continuing since Trump was elected president and had taken office. We see the increases uh, just since August of 2017. If you look, um, let's see, on August 1st of 2017, we had the Dow Jones at 21,900. So in just a period of four months, we have seen that increase by over 3,000 points and it is great to see. I mean, that that's a, a huge increase. But will is this sustainable? Is this going to continue like this? We, on The Daily Show today, covered a piece from Ron Paul that he uh, had a problem with the U.S. economy, saying that it's uns- unsustainable. We know that already. But what he was saying is that we need to watch for a, a sudden and cataclysmic economic jolt, much of like we saw with the Soviet Union, in the early 1990s and is that danger uh still here today because we have you know we see all these great economic numbers the job numbers for december was 250,000 new jobs the uh, layoff numbers are the lowest since 1990 we see the continued uh, influx in the gdp the rises in the stock market the confidence in the real in the in the retail market and some people still think that we are on the verge of some kind of economic cataclysm. Now, 
is this uh, the true value of the stock market? Are we going to see corrections? Many varying um, opinions about this, but all indicators except for the national debt seem to be very good. And we hope that this trend continues through 2018, uh, allowing our economy to truly grow as well as with those tax cuts, getting more money back both uh, personally and through, you know, the, the corporate taxes that were cut uh, will allow businesses to reinvest in their employees, reinvest in their businesses, and having that extra money for the employees each week in the form of getting more taxes back is a good thing. So <clears throat> all good news on the economy today. Where will uh, we be, you know, three months, six months, even a year from now? hopefully on the same trend. Um, another area I wanted to hit today, I don't know how many people saw this or even wondered if this was an important story. We saw what the, the you know, the big dust-up between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, which we still don't have a very good understanding of exactly what it is that started this, if Bannon said these things, and there have been a lot of commentary and speculation about this relationship between Bannon and Trump but the White House, uh, and this is up on Hagman Report, I found this very interesting. With all this stuff going on, the White House has announced that they're banning personal cell phones from the West Wing. They came out with a statement saying that all personal cell phones and other personal devices will be banned from the West Wing, citing security concerns. And what's interesting about this is we um, I, we haven't seen a lot of leaks lately. We saw at the very beginning of the Trump presidency we uh, a huge number of leaks that were coming out uh, pretty regularly and it, as time continued to move forward the leaks seemed to die out especially when we saw all the different personnel changes that we had at the White House from Rents Priebus to Scaramucci to Sean Spicer to all these different people that came and went Steve Bannon many people with this feud between Trump and Bannon are now pointing the finger at him saying he was the leaker and does the DOJ still have investigations on who the leakers were. Chuck Grassley today uh, made some comments and said that he believes that James Comey is guilty of leaking classified information to, I believe it was the New York Times, and that is very interesting. There was a step uh, from Comey to a law professor, right. then to the New York Times. Well, he admitted so, that. Yeah. He, I mean, he admitted but, that he, he uh, uh, in, intentionally gave the information to a friend who then leaked it to a reporter at the New York Times. And that's very interesting. But the Bannon-Trump relationship, has has Bannon committed political suicide if these comments prove to be accurate? We've seen a lot of reaction from this, and it, uh, some people call well, it a distraction. Look, I think the comments are accurate. They're just contextually um, inflamed. I, I think that they were intentionally inflamed. Um, and then think about this. They're accurate from the book, the pre-release of the book. And if, if you folks know anything about, um, when somebody's going to publish a book, we'll get an advanced copy of it. And you're able to review it depending on for what purpose. But, so the, the, the text show is right out of the book. The comments are right out of the book. Okay. Uh, however. But, well, yeah, was that what was, because we've seen Bannon, especially on the Charlie Rose interview, talk about the Russia investigation that is absolutely uh, nothing to it. It's a witch hunt. There's nothing there. There was no collusion, and it is uh, you know, just a, an attack on the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. And then, what, a month or two later for him to turn around and make claims that the meetings by Donald Trump Jr. were treasonous? 
it seems like a, a big uh, difference in what he was just saying a month before those quotes were taken. So a lot of questions remain. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. There's so much to get into, by the way. I, I just I want to make a clarification. With respect to Joe, uh, on the Hagman report, you had, uh, you and John, thank you so much for handling the program last night. You and John talked, talked, uh, with attorney John Haller. And of course, it's interesting because I've been, I've been personally monitoring the comments. Uh, there was seven, about seven minutes taken of the Haller interview with respect to the sealed indictments. I just think that we need to spend a little bit of time here and kind of make sure people understand what what's going on. I, I sense that a lot of those YouTube comments were either from trolls or people who just have no clue of what they're talking about. Because, okay. Was this on the three-hour show comments, or was this on the segmented? No. This is on the segmented. Well, I, I didn't I, I didn't have time to check the entire. This is just on the segment where John Heller uh, and you, you and John Heller were talking about the uh, 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 sealed indictments. Okay. okay. Now, <laughs> just to be clear, all right, uh, the reference to PACER, of course, that's the um, the electronic case system that you can access, and it's fee-based. Well, it's fee-based to look at the, the, to review the documents. Once you, uh, access the system, you, you can, you can do searches and such, but, uh, when you want actual copies of the documents, it's fee-based. It's like 10 cents a page or whatever it might be to view, and then you can, you can save them and print them. But what people are saying, and I just want to be clear about this, what people are saying, and that's by the way of the, the entire elect, uh, the federal electronic records keeping system. So if there is an indictment or a any kind of um, court action, it could be as simple as a document entered into the uh, entered into a uh, the system on a case. But if you if you go back a little or if you peel back a little ways and just look at the uh, number of cases and the number of, the, of indictments all across the United States, what people are saying is, look, oh, there's all these sealed indictments. And what John Haller said yesterday, attorney John Haller, said, you know, look, I'm familiar with this. And so are we, so am I. I mean, I spent a lot of years uh, looking at various legal documents. And and the the fact that you've got a lot of sealed indictments does not extrapolate into these indictments relate to indictments of wrongdoing or even indictments, period, Um of potential or of globalists doing, you know, that are going to be arrested. It just doesn't work that way. And it's it's not quite like reading tea leaves, but it's attempting to extrapolate through numbers, filings, and locations and the fact that they're sealed. Well, okay, what does this mean? For, uh, and he pointed out the Washington Examiner even kind of um, looked at, at the indictments and said, well, you know, between the filing of the uh, Manafort and Papadopoulos, whose that was the name he could not remember, there were four sealed indictments. Well, as it turned out, the, the four had nothing to do with the two cases at hand. And, yeah. and th- this is where I think people are, are are coming, getting into that the problem. Now we're not look, do not confuse or do not do not look at us and say, well, you know, you're just. Uh, 
you're working for the opposition. You don't want to see this, or you're protecting globalists. My goodness, there'd be nothing more than I would love to see than indictments out the wazoo of these people. Of course, right. Okay? But we have to... It's, it's, For example, if you have someone out there inexperienced looking at the PACER, the, the electronic records, unfamiliar with, with the whole system, or even worse, having a vague familiarity, to read into sealed documents in any given um, jurisdiction, whether it's the Western District of Pennsylvania, Southern District of New York, or wherever it might be, and, and to say, well... See, look, look at these. Look at the number of indictments here, and look at the number of sealed indictments. To, to say that this is uh, a movement against the globalist elitists who are, uh, you know, the, the the pedophiles out there, the, uh, uh, the the criminals. To say that that these this is proof of 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 that is erroneous. That's all we're saying. I would love it to be so. Oh, would I love it to be so. But in and of itself, that proves nothing. So I, I just want to say that I, I don't know what's going on. Um, and even, you know, our, our integrity is questionable. How dare you say that these, uh, you know, that nothing is happening and uh, we're, we're being taken out of context. No, man, I'm telling you. It, look, it, it's, and I've seen this happen too um, with new investigators. When, when you Sometimes they'll look at raw data from a profile. Uh, we've, we've got access to databases. And a lot of times the databases spit out not just erroneous information, but vague information. And you'll look at information that's on a database uh, of an individual, and you'll interpret that in a manner that you, you shouldn't. But experience tells you the more you work with the database material and the more you work with the electronic database records, the more you understand that this does not mean uh, what you think it means. So anyway, I just want to make sure that that was clarified. And this is not in defense of anyone, but I think it's so important right now as we reach this critical moment in um, in history. I think that people really need to understand. Look, things are ha- things are happening behind the scene, and there are additional arrests. You cannot deny that. But a sealed indictment and. In, in, somehow extrapolating uh, a half a dozen, a dozen, or any number to uh, to potential arrests and saying, see, look, this is happening. It's just erroneous, and, and I would urge people to, to use extra caution. That's all I'm saying. So go ahead. All right. Well, uh, moving forward, I don't know how many people <clears throat> saw this, but this was uh, something Trump issued in a tweet. I think it was really uh, maybe Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday this week. But now the State Department has announced that it is indefinitely freezing um, aid, security aid to Pakistan as relations between the United States and Pakistan hit a new low Thursday when the Trump administration announced a broad suspension of nearly all bilateral security aid to Islamabad and calling out the Pakistani government over its weak record on religious freedom. In a sign of the administration's mounting frustration over what it says, Pakistan's refusal to confront terrorist networks operating in the South Asian nation, the State Department spokeswoman said that the halt in aid will remain in place indefinitely until Islamabad takes decisive actions against the Taliban and other jihadist groups. 
Pakistan isn't the only country that is in the crosshairs uh, when talking about American aid. During that same tweet, Trump also mentioned Palestine and the Palestinians and their constant hatred uh, and how they continue to expect to receive U.S. aid money and how this was going to stop because these countries do everything in their power you know, to work against the best interests of America and the world. And I agree that this is... Uh, a very uh, good measure, a step in the right direction, as the United States has given more than $33 billion in aid to Islamabad since 2001, much of the money tied to military training in Pakistan, as well as purchasing of U.S. weaponry. But the um, it can't be denied that Pakistan is a nation that harbors terrorism and protects them. I mean, we don't have to look any further than who? The Awan brothers and mothers. <laughs> And, yeah, friends, and uh, about the Awans, I just want to make sure people know, and that's a good segue, um, President Trump brought attention to the, the Awan criminal cabal, the biggest spy ring in Congress, through a tweet that he sent out, I think it was on December 28th or 29th. Um, and it's interesting because now, now this is something that I think that we have to pay attention to, the fact that the... Uh, the court hearing is suddenly off calendar, off the court's calendar mm-hmm. for January. I, I think now that should tell us something. Those are tea leaves that we can read. Uh, what's the, now, normally in a court on a court calendar, if something is removed, it's it's rescheduled, and there, there's no there's no uh, um, filing for a rescheduling. So, what's going on with this? I do. Uh, you're looking at uh, a number of the awans. You're looking at uh, Raoul Abbas. You're looking at Dr. Al Atari. Um, a number of people involved, not just Imran, not just Omar, not just uh, Abid or Natalia or uh, uh, Hina. Uh, uh, what's her name? His wife. Uh, I don't know his wife. Yeah, name. Hina Alvi. Not not just her, but you're looking at roughly seven, perhaps eight, in this Pakistani nationals. They're Pakistani nationals. It's a criminal cabal that worked for upwards of 80 congressional Democrats for the last 12 years at 2.4, roughly 2.4 times the median income of any IT professional in Congress. These people were pulling down 160 grand a piece per year, including the Just 20, in salary. In salary, including the 22-year-old kid uh, that, that was working or wasn't working but getting paid. So, in total, over a period of 12, 12 and a half years, they were they, they pulled down six million dollars. But it's not just. And by the way, again, President Trump uh, uh, brought attention to this through. Uh, a tweet that was sent out at the end of the year. And I think that now this is something we have to keep our eye on because this is not just about simp- simply a mortgage fraud, one kind of a mortgage fraud or multiple kinds of, of mortgage fraud. This is about something a lot bigger than that. This is about, if you want to talk about fraud, you've got the business fraud where the Awans uh, were running, of course, Cars International A, abbreviated CIA, interestingly enough. The problem is they just don't have any cars. Go figure. It was money laundering mm-hmm. operation. You know, they wanted a car. They got to go across the street to uh, AAA Automotive to bring a car. To, you know, if somebody was interested in buying one. 
but don't let that stop you for running a car dealership. So it, it was about sending money to Pakistan, but most importantly, it was about sending terabits or terabytes of information from the congressional servers housing three, count them, three of the top national security committees in, in uh, on planet Earth. They had access to compliments of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but they were sending information to Pakistan. This is the biggest story that no one's talking about, with the exception of Luke Rosiak of the Daily Caller, um, uh, uh, George Webb, of course, we had on our program. And regardless of what you think about either one of them, any of them, all of them, look, the information is what it is. But Congress has been infiltrated by the, the, the largest Muslim spy ring. And by the way, Andre Carson, Keith Ellison, uh, Keith Ellison, by the way, uh, was sent a tweet out uh, and was pictured with holding the uh, oh my goodness to help me out with this the Antifa handbook yes okay really but but uh, okay Keith Ellison strike fear in the heart of Trump right just and and that is and think about and think about the message the uh, not just the Antifa but the the red green axis talked about here. Uh, through David Capellian and John, who is the other gentleman we had on? Uh, not David Capellian, the other gentleman. Um, about the red green axis. Yeah. Uh, see, I'm getting old. Mad cow disease. We'll get it. But okay, <clears throat> that's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, the, what we're seeing here is the inf- the communist infiltration from the 50s on steroids and now you've got Marxist Muslims who are infiltrating the Congress so pay attention to this because this this uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz Debbie Wasserman Schultz and uh, others again upwards of 80 affected over the course of a dozen years 80 congressmen three committees and, and, but Debbie Wasserman Schultz at the epicenter. And then, of course, April 6th of, of last year, and I've got, this is all from memory. I don't have my notes in front of me. I've got papers, but not notes. Uh, April 6th is when the, uh, uh, computer and doc, and the other documents were found in the little cubby on the second floor of the Rayburn House office building. And, and of course, that was the computer, the laptop that was owned by Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the subject of contention between the police chief and Wasserman Schultz. Look, this is all big important stuff but at the end of the day it is the selling out of our national security by members of congress via the awan criminal cabal and their associates to pakistan and other hostile authorities including hezbollah this is uh, connected to project cassandra this is uh, connected to obama and others as well uh in addition and this is connected to uh uh hillary clinton and specifically the Seth Rich homicide. And yes, by the way, don't send me emails. I know who has been identified as the reported killer of Seth Rich. I, I, I've seen it. Uh, I get it. But there is something I, I understand. I'll just I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but all that said, look, uh, we've got an issue in this country right now where Donald Trump is, number one, he's being characterized as a moron. If you've seen the computer, by the way, have you seen the the car? And I'm gonna, I just haven't talked uh, since yesterday, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so with the exception of my program, I haven't really said too much, and I, I missed last night. But have you seen the cartoons of Donald Trump? 
being made of Donald Trump sitting in the, his, his, the White House bedroom with Big Macs and, uh, you know, fast food. <clears throat> no, no. Okay. They're prolific out there. And think back, if, if you're students of history, think back to, uh, Herblock, the, uh, his, the, uh, cartoonist who skewered McCarthy. Very effective political parodies of Joe McCarthy, making him look like a, a buffoon, impugning his character through cartoons. Boy, does that sound familiar of late. I feel like a, I feel like Pinocchio, actually. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah, well, okay, for all your, your six followers, you, you understand. Well, let me, uh, and, and by the way, you know, when people draw first blood, go ahead. When people tell me to turn the other cheek, yeah. Um, no, turn the other cheek means I'll strike the other cheek. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, thanks, John. That was, uh, James Simpson, the author of, uh, of Axis, uh, the Red Green Axis. Right, okay, Thank right. you. Yeah. But so I, I just said a whole bunch of stuff right there, but the bottom line is they're making out, uh, they're making Donald Trump out to be a buffoon. Meanwhile, the issues of the wants, and they'll never talk about the issues of the Clinton emails, which still has not been litigated and calls for the Justice Department to reinvestigate that. They're, they're going. So Sessions is finally doing something with that. Uh, you've got the Freedom Caucus now. Uh, at, uh, demanding that session res- sessions resign. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. But that, I, I do Caucus. agree. Yeah. I mean, he's the, Jeff Sessions is doing more to, to go after pot than he is the uh, you know corruption inside the FBI, DOJ, and the Hillary Clinton scandals that that we've seen. And speaking of you know scandals on the left, um, this is a great article from the Washington Times. Liberal leaders now running from the anti-Trump dossier in Russia probe. And this talks about uh, Washington's liberal establishment suddenly is running from the Democratic Party's Russia dossier, which for months was the fodder for Democrats to hurl charges against President Trump. A new media narrative has arisen since Representative Nunez uh, launched a probe to find out who funded the unverified dossier and how the FBI used it. Because they believe the FBI used it to get the FISA warrants to go after Trump, even though it was unverified, the left-wing media now is walking that back, saying, no, 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 uh, George Papadopoulos bragging in a London bar that he had heard Russia had thousands of Clinton emails, that was the real uh, beginning of the Mueller investigation and the FISA warrants. So something that they couldn't verify, wouldn't publish, then used as evidence against Trump, are they are now walking it back because they see their continued support of this is going to possibly bring down some people inside the political establishment. We will be right back after this break with the Iranian expert, Shirin uh, Nishat. Don't go anywhere. This is the Hagman Report. I'll tell you, we are so lucky right now to have with us um, an expert on Iran. In fact, her last appearance was September 7th, or yeah, September 7th, 2017. That was last year. I, I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is 2018. Yeah. I'll work on my dates and, and uh, days and dates this week and then numbers next week. I'm sorry. Uh, no, we, we've got, we, we've got coming up here momentarily is Sharin Nashat. 
and her website is alinashat.org. Shirin Nashat is the co-founder of the United Front uh, of Military and Iranian People. Again, you can find that at alinashat.org. She joins us to discuss the current state of Iranian society under the rule of mullahs. Remember, it was a February 1979, and I remember this like it was yesterday when they over, when the, um, when the, uh, when Khomeini came in and the Shah was taken out. I remember what Jimmy Carter did. Just give, give us a thumbs up when she's, She's ready. Oh, okay. Oh, she's ready. All right. But I remember that. And here to tell us the current state of what's going on is with this, with our, it's our distinct honor and pleasure, uh, to bring on Sharin Nashad. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Sharin Nashad is, can you hear us? Yes, I'm here. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh, I'm sorry. That was probably a, that was, I think that was a problem. Good evening to you. Good, good evening. And, uh, Sharin, you, you were, you're so gracious to join us and to tell us what, what we are watching in Iran. Um, Thank you very much. First, uh, I would like to say good evening to your listeners and audience and happy new year to all. And it's a pleasure to be back on your program. You know, it, it is a distinct pleasure to have you. Just to remind people, Sharin is the daughter of General Ali Nishat. Uh, now, General Nishat commanded the, uh, uh, an elite unit of the Iranian Imperial Guard that ranged in strength from eight to 12,000 men, each of whom directly was responsible to the Shah. And uh, you bring a very unique perspective about uh, the recent mega-protests in Iran. If you can just explain to the Americans what's going on. Um, as you know, for uh, almost 40 years, 39 years, this terrorist, terrorist regime in Iran occupied Iran. We don't call them the government for or in our country. Uh, and um, since they have been in Iran during the past 39 years, uh, they have destroyed everything and innocent people and on daily basis they were killing, uh, terrorizing uh, the innocent people. Well, um, right now this uh, uprising is uh, through the people. There is no organization, nothing to control them or ask them. As you see in the news, people are uh, very tired about everything, about their lives, about their torturing, about their killings, about um, they don't have piece of bread on their table. They are hungry. And what the mullahs have done, they have got uh, the country money for themselves and uh, for their family, and they don't think anything about these innocent people. Even the schools, the universities, the women rights, nothing, nothing is um, right in that country. It's 39 years past, and right now the people are really agitated, very angry, uh, and they want freedom. 
But uh, before anything, I have to thank President Trump for his support and American United States people for supporting us, or after that, any other country, because we really need your support here. Unlike, I I don't mean to interrupt, but this is a dramatic change from Obama to Donald Trump. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 Yes, of course. Okay. Uh, Well, we are very happy that uh, President Trump is there, and uh, as he mentioned, he is standing behind um, Iranian people. And they see how it uh, goes in that country now. And I'm happy that we have a very smart uh, president, very smart government. We're really thankful. And, uh, well, what is going on there right now? As you see, there is the, the government, the terrorist government in Iran. They are trying to close all the Internet uh, uh Wi-Fi, Internet, any uh, news that it can come out from that country. As uh, the uh, president of Iran said, they are not going to touch that, and they uh, let have the people being touched with uh, out of the country. But unfortunately, even he couldn't stay on his promise. And the people are tired, and this generation is the second generation almost. And all the young people who are smarter than uh, the generation in 79, uh, they are out of the houses, and they are asking for their freedom without having any guns, anything to uh, just can protect themselves. And as you see, this terrorist regime is bringing their forces out to beat them. We have uh, thousands in the jails, and they are torturing them, as you have seen the pictures. Uh, we have um, almost over 22 dead. But what we are asking, before this rises and the torture of the people, because they don't have anything in hand to um, have a compact with this terrorist regime, we need really help. We are asking uh President Trump to help us as soon as possible before uh, we get more death or torturing under this terrorist regime in Iran. Well, during my time, they have uh, executed a lot of uh, uh, people in forces. But now we don't want them, the, these young people experience these things. The families, in 40 years, we are in blue. And oh, the people, the parents, the sisters, the husbands, the brothers, the wife, everybody has lost uh, their family. It's, it's, it's been a wholesale, a wholesale, uh, I, I don't want to use this word lightly, but but a uh, wholesale cleansing, uh, political and uh, ethnic and religious or religious cleansing in Iran. If I can just even address the basics with you, uh, what started? Was there one single event that started what we're seeing, or was there a single group or 
person that started this, what we're seeing, the uprising? I, I tell you this, it's, um, this uprising, this is um, something that you can't believe it. It came out from Mashhad and Neshobu. It started from there, which is one of the very, very religious cities, um, uh, states in Iran. And see how much the people are in pain and in danger of their lives that uh, the uprising came from there and there is no group, nothing. The people rise. This is very important. If you remember, even in 98, we had uprising too, but we didn't have any help. And uh, the government during the 98, during President Obama, didn't care. Even they have sent the whole money by a plane back to Iran. Which those, uh, and it was cash money, which those money are Iranians' money. And it should spend for the children of the Iran, for the women of Iran, for the people of Iran. Okay. okay. And do you know, right uh, right now, we are not thinking uh, about the next regime, who is coming uh, for the country. The most important thing is the freedom of Iran and Iranians from this terrorist regime. Then we can decide with open voting. I mean, uh, we the people have votes. Uh, what kind of regime they want? It's not. Um, well, we are not speaking right now. Even His Majesty is not speaking that he goes back to Iran. Okay. He always says whatever Iranian people like and vote for it. Now, who are you referring to? Uh, Her Majesty, who who is that? Uh, that for me, because I have one vote. It is Reza Pahlavi, the okay. former right. prince of Iran. Okay, all right. Which is I a, have wh- only one vote, and I call him His Majesty, and uh, because uh, that's my vote, my own uh, only one person's vote. But the people, there are millions of 80 uh, million people that they have to vote and see uh, whom they want to run the country. Okay, yeah. all right. Now, how can we best see? Here, here's our, here's the the issue for really for multiple administrations or even since Jimmy Carter, I, Iran has been uh, not just misunderstood, but uh, really the the uh, the mullahs. Uh, have been uh, propped up in, in in power. Now, of course, we have Donald Trump, the freedom fighter, so to speak. Uh, yes. You know. So, but how? What do Americans you know, need to do? Dear, uh, I tell you something. On Iranians' perspective, we don't like Jimmy Carter at all. <laughs> yeah, we I don't wonder like why. him, and we are very, very disrespect to him. I and my friends, we said if President Trump help us, the first thing that we do, we get a ticket and fly to Washington, D.C. in front of the um, uh, White House and thank him for supporting Iranian people. 
Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you this. I read an article yesterday that said that the one of the huge differences between the uprising in 2009 versus what we see today is that today this is not uh, this is uh, the protests are run by the poor working class and that there is a huge um, I guess you call it subjugated population of Iran that is sick of the corruption sick of the um, the the high prices and and everything is it seems to be spinning out of control there they're not able to continue to afford um, what what the leadership is doing is is that an accurate statement is this really um, you know the the heart of the Iranian civilization stepping up against um, the regime ah uh, yes I tell you this now the children of ninety eight they have growing up they are smarter than we are. They know techniques better than we did. And um, they are, see, um, two young people can't get married over there because it's too expensive. One person has to have two, three jobs to have a comfortable, not really comfortable, but something to eat uh, um, with their family. The people are hungry. They knew, and it has been proven to them, that whatever the Mullah's regime told them, it was only lies. They haven't done anything for that uh, country and their people. Look at us. During the Shah, our passports, the Iranian passports, has... Um, um, character it was famous it was uh, famous but now even some Iranian people when they are out of the country uh, they say okay we don't want to talk Persian or we don't want people know we are from Iran or something see how this regime has destroyed that country and people which I am proud to be Iranian. Even they killed my father, even they executed him, and uh, they took everything from us, and uh, we didn't have uh, permission to work in that country. Uh, We didn't have a piece of bread to eat. Um, A lot of things which in, uh, in my September interview with you, I explained everything. Uh, but today, and you did. And, th- and just for the people who are listening, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But for the people who are listening, sure. um, what we are going to do is is uh, couple your September interview with this interview, uh, and then yeah. repost it because I think it's so important. Your story and, and all that is so important. What people need. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. I, I don't want to take you off your train of thought. Thank you very much. And uh, today we are fortunate. The difference from 98, as I said, it was the government of United States that they didn't care. Just some here and there, they were giving us some hope. But now, Donald Trump, our president, I am talking as a citizen of the United States, he promised to help us to help our countrymen. And do you know, those people are innocent. 
and those people they are they don't have anything to in their hands to protect themselves from this terrorist regime and that's not a joke Right, and, and the, the conditions have changed dramatically since your last appearance in September of 17th of today. So now, yeah. uh, and now we've got, we've got the momentum of, of a revolution in progress right now. Yeah. We've got, yeah. and, and, and all, everything's in our, everything's in your favor. Everything's in the favor of the Iranian people. You've got, the Iranian people have the mullahs based on the numbers. I mean, the, the number of re- revolutionaries can win just by showing up, but they need yeah. they need the the support and assistance of our government. Uh, unlike Obama, who supported the the uh, oppressive regime, yeah. uh, they need Donald Trump's support. And this is what you're saying as well that that exactly okay, this, yeah exactly. And but one thing I have to remind you: we don't want our country to become a country like Syria. Right. We don't want to lose any part of our country. We are united. What? What? What could? Uh, what could? How could that happen? In other words, what misstep could cause a Syria a Syria type situation? You know. Um, well, um, the, the Kurds, the Turks. Do you know, uh, we don't want to lose any part of our country with the help of the United States. We don't want to become like Syria. We want to be a free country. We want freedom to speak. We want freedom for women, which they don't have it now. And we had all of those during the Shah. And again, United States, I know they are uh, smarter than than, uh, the government is smarter than I am, but they have to be very careful with what people they are dealing. Sure. And and that's that's so important. Now, can you tell us what... what, um, given, Given everything you've seen so far, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but where do you see this going if there's no external influence influences that would um, bolster the mullahs? I, I, this time, I really see it very well. Very well, because uh, there is no group, no uh, political group involved. And especially um, the the, uh, the recession, the um, people rise from very very religious places that they are against uh, the uh, religion uh, government in Iran. Right. And, and as you, you pointed know? out, yeah, exactly. And as you pointed out, now I don't, I don't mean to overtalk you, but I know that, uh, the, look, the Iranian people can't disagree. They cannot dissent, uh, against their government for fear of reprisal. Boys as young as nine, as you pointed out, are conscripted into the military. Women have lost their rights, all of them. Their relig- and the entire population has lost their religious freedom. You're, the uprisings of which you are not just, not just, um, uh, in agreement with, but, Somewhat, could I say, not well, maybe responsible for in some little way. 
Would that be an overstatement? Would that be an accurate statement uh, that that you've helped uh, with these uprisings? No, uh, well, um, actually, we are helping them. We are helping them, and we are giving them uh, because we are Iranians. You know, how can you see your people over there are torturing and uh, they are killing those people, and we sit here. Of course, we are helping them outside of the country by being in touch with them, releasing the news from Iran, and uh, giving them some news from United States and the president and the government, and whatever we can do, we do it from bottom of our hearts. Okay, and we right. are very happy about that, that the, this uprising was from the people, not any political groups. This exactly, exactly, and I don't think that that point could be emphasized enough. But by the way, Joe just informed me you you were chopping up there a little bit in our audio, and I'm not sure if you asked me a question or not. And if you did, I apologize if I didn't answer it. You go ahead and ask it again if you if you if you did. No, 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 no. Sure, uh, I didn't ask any questions. Okay. I right. said uh, just. You know, these are the main things that we are looking forward for it. But we are asking um, American uh, government if they really stand uh, behind us, the Iranian people, please do something as soon as possible before uh, we lose a lot of young people or, uh, you know, um, uh, the Iranian people. Okay. Because it's 40 years they are slaves of that terrorist regime. What, what can our listeners do today, right now, today, tomorrow, whenever they listen to this? And we've got listeners all over the world, including Europe. But what can they do? What do you recommend that they do right now? How can we best help you? The, the, the people uh, right now, try to stop. Uh, just uh, help them and try to take this terrorist regime as soon as possible from that country. And then people get uh, their freedom. Yeah. People get, do you know, uh, I don't know, I'm not, uh, do you know, I'm not expert, but there are the ways that the government knows it. Do you believe that the the uprising, the people and, and, and these protests, will lead to the removal of the regime, or do you believe that you're going to see a brutal crackdown by the government? Uh, well, with the help of uh, Iranian people over there, uh, as you know, uh, some of them run away from the country. As you heard, some of them ran away from the country. Right. But right. we don't want that happen. They have to stay there and after the freedom they have to you know there is a court there is people they have to vote for them what to do with them you know and because of that all the time we are asking uh, the forces just uh, go to the people and help the people out which we have some um um, people that they have sent us uh, some pictures if they were vassages or from the SEPA or uh, other organizations uh, they are um, they went to the people and now they are helping we need them to help the people right away the forces in Iran alright okay. 
Okay. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and uh, help the people because the people uh, are empty-handed. Yeah. They, uh, they are facing a lot of criminals in that country. No, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And I just want to remind people again, your website is Ali Nishat. That's A-L-I-N-E-S-H-A-T dot org. Ali Nishat dot org. And of course, you are the, um, daughter of, uh, General Ali Nishat. And of course, the website named after Ali Nishat. And you are calling for people not to, not, not to flee from Iran, but to stay there and, and to fight, join the uprising. Yes. Yes, uh, we really need that. And another thing that we are asking and we are hoping in the day of freedom of Iran, all the bank accounts around the world uh, be sealed, be frozen, and return their monies which they got from people of Iran, which even uh, if you see the children, how they are sitting in the cold and studying and going to school without having a roof, without having a piece of bread, and yes. return those monies back to people of Iran. This is one of the biggest mm-hmm. help that the world can do for us. And then when, when all the dust settles, uh, I'll, I'll personally fly Jimmy Carter over and put him in Tahrir Square for you. And, uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, look, uh, I gotta tell you, you are just an incredible lady. You've got a lot of tenacity, and we are praying for you. Ali Nishat, the United Front of Military and Iranian People. We want to hear from you again. Yes, please come back. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year again, and thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to be with your audience and your listeners, and it's a pleasure to be in your program always. Thank Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. You have a great night. You too. Good. We'll be right back with Peter Chowka. back to hour number two on this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. We're going to be joined by Peter Chowka in just a few minutes, and he's going to cover a lot of ground from the Trump administration to his latest piece on the Robert Mueller grand jury, and it's going to be a very informative hour. First, I want to bring you a quick word from our, one of our sponsors, Greenovative. They are running their sale until Friday at midnight, and this is a great sale. You get 20% off all individual items in the store, and their super twofers and super threefer sales are already discounted at 20 to 23%. Don't forget you have the mission pack there. That's greenovative.com, promo code Hagman. They have their year, uh, beginning year sale, 20% off till Friday at midnight. So you have until tomorrow at midnight to take advantage of that. Again, promo code Hagman. Thank you, greenovative, greenovative.com. Peter Chowka is our guest this hour. And his latest piece up on Hagman Report, which you can find all of his work when you go to Hagman Report, right on the right-hand side, he has a special column that Eric has put there for him. His latest piece, Mueller's Grand Jury, looks like a Bernie Sanders rally. I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on that this. That had me rolling. I mean, yeah. I, look, I, Bernie Sanders rally, Black Lives Matter rally, okay, you know, lack of, seriously, 
you think this whole thing is fair, and which which goes back to what I originally said about uh, indictments, and indictments originate from grand juries, uh, and of course, well, you do the math, at least with respect to the uh, D.C. District. Peter, how are you, sir? Well, good evening, gentlemen. It's great to see you again, and uh, we're joined at the outset by uh, Biggie the Cat hey. over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I see. He has uh, a bit of his own fan club, so uh, here he is. Enjoying the catnip, which is the way to lure him to the back of the uh, sofa that I broadcast from. But since we're a few days out from uh, New Year's, I wanted to wish uh, you guys, the Hagman family, the extended Hagman Report family, and all the listeners and viewers a happy New Year 2018. Thank you. And uh, look forward to working with you uh, during the year ahead. We look forward to working with you. We are honored. We are privileged to have you. Um, as part of our, uh, as part of the, really the, the, the family, um, but, but the, the team, whatever you want to call it, but your work has been stellar. You've been on target with so many things. You, um, I was talking uh, earlier today or yesterday, I think, maybe it was yesterday, uh, who among us have had our tweets retweeted by Sean Hannity, but, but most importantly, President Donald Trump, other than Peter Chauka. And, and there, there he is, folks. Well, thank thank you for mentioning that. And actually, today uh, there was another interesting development. Uh, within the last day, I was contacted by a producer at the BBC in London, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and she asked me if I would appear as a guest on a half-hour news program on the BBC World Service, which goes out. Uh, she said, and she provided the documentation. This is seen by 43 million people around the world. So this morning at bright and early at 7 a.m. Pacific time, after another night of no sleep, I managed to uh, pull together the video Skype and appeared for uh, a whole three minutes on this program. And uh, I, I, I tweeted it at my Twitter, P. Chowka, P-C-H-O-W-K-A. And the interesting thing was the program... Uh, goes out in Arabic. It's primarily aimed at uh, viewers in the Middle East and in Africa and in countries uh, that are Muslim countries. It's part of BBC Arabic. And uh, they, they it's a brand new program and it's called Trending uh, because it covers issues that are trending in social media. So they wanted me to talk about uh, the controversy with uh, Michael Wolf's new book, uh, that has pitted uh, Steve Bannon against President Trump. And what was interesting was they told me it would be brief, and I got two questions, and I had time for two answers, which totaled about uh, three minutes total. And it's an interesting discipline to try to boil everything you've got to say, or as much as you can say, into about two and a half minutes. Right. Uh, minus the questions. So that was... Um, an interesting way to start the day, but it, it made me look forward to this even more because we have time to uh, more casually get into the issues and not try to, uh, you know, get it out in, in a matter of seconds. Well, other than the fact that you've been now, uh, by the logic of the progressive, globalist, communist, Marxist scum out there, now now we've established you're colluding with the Islamists. Uh, okay, that aside, is is there a place where we can find that? Uh, archived, uh. Yes, well the entire show, uh, is, is archived and, um, 
I should put up a link to that, too. I did tweet the segment. It's a six-minute segment from this program called Trending, which uh, looks at, at the controversy, as I've said, with Michael Wolf's book. And uh, this was done with a simultaneous translation. The program is produced and the hosts speak Arabic. So they had a translator on the line, a Ph.D., who... Uh, uh, interpreted the questions to me in English, and I answered. Then he interpreted uh, in Arabic my answers, and this was done seamlessly and flawlessly. I, w- I was so impressed; I was just amazed. And they gave me a, a you know a very good reception. I didn't uh, couch what I had to say at all. I pretty much told it like it is. And uh, by watching the six-minute segment, I come on about halfway through it. Although at my tweet to it, I've linked to the. The, it's up, actually up at YouTube, this video, right. the segment from Trending BBC. So I link to it where my little segment begins, but it's fascinating to get a look at the production values of the BBC. They are really first rate, and uh, they are the largest television and radio broadcaster in the world. They have, uh, I forget what the total is, something like 500 million viewers around the world and, and of course there's wow. BBC America too right. and of course they're a little left of center but I have to say that when my interpreter was doing me the favor of reading me the the script that preceded my coming on three minutes into this segment uh, I, I thought they did a, a fantastic job of summarizing what this uh, United States controversy is about without any obvious spin or taint that you would get, for example, from the cable news channels, at least two of them here in the United States. So, uh, you know, I was fairly impressed with their work. Well, well, well that's great. At least, uh, at least they didn't they didn't have a a, a sign a sign language person in the corner signing in gibberish. But, <laughs> and um, they promised to have me back. So I guess uh, that's good. You know, I guess I didn't uh, turn anybody off, but uh, I did take the little Christmas tree down from the background because knowing that this was going out to Islamic countries, I didn't want to have a fatwa (laughs) or anything. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, that's awesome, Peter. You get a whole new untapped market. Well, he's going to get emails saying, Hey, did you know that when uh, he, uh, he he acquiesced to the Muslims? Uh, you know, it's just gonna—it's funny. <laughs> I was wondering if I should say "Assalamu alaikum." There you go. You could be like—I knew not to say "Alu Akbar," <laughs> but I, I just kept it English only. I would only—I would let them do the translating. You, you, could, you could be like Barry Satora, Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, uh, you say that too well, as a matter of fact. So we've got to look into you a little bit. Well, Peter, Uh-oh. yeah, where do we? Where do you want to start? And again, thank you so much because I know you're sleep deprived. Uh, as I think we all are because just of the way things are going. But where do you want to start with? Uh, well, uh, before we end, I, I definitely want to get into the Bannon thing because I did so much research on that for this BBC program. But uh, what I where I really wanted to start was kind of with a, a brief overview of where we're at or where I think we're at at the start of the new year. And what encouraged me to look at this topic was uh, a... Uh, poll that the Drudge Report did eight days ago, in which Matt Drudge asked his uh, his uh, visitors to his website what they thought the major story of the year just passed, 2017, was. And I believe he had some choices there, and 
coming in far ahead of anything else was the presidency of Donald J. Trump. That was over 40% of the Drudge Report readers felt that that was the biggest story of the year. And I thought about that and I said, of course, that's the biggest story because everything else kind of, everything else that we've been talking about and so much that's been reported in the media in the past year since Trump did become president has derived from his presidency. Uh, first of all, his election in November of 2016 was completely unprecedented, and there are a number of historians out there who say this may be the most unprecedented presidential election in the entire history of the country with somebody who had absolutely no government or, or military experience. There have been a few presidents who haven't been politicians like Ulysses Grant or Dwight Eisenhower, but they were military men all their lives. Trump, no, just a private citizen and a business person. So that's pretty amazing. His uh, administration, of course, we know very well, uh, Make America Great Again, is a complete and total departure from the previous eight years or even longer than that. His presidency has completely exposed uh, the existence of the shadow government and the deep state, not only confirmed their existence, but illustrated their enormous, massive, unchecked power to, in effect, still be pulling so many of the shots that are going down in this country. And President Trump has had an uphill battle, obviously, in trying to get control of the levers of government. His presidency has exposed the corruption of the justice system in this country, of the FBI, of the continued existence and growth of the surveillance state, which he and his uh, top officials in his campaign obviously got caught up in. Now, he tweeted that almost a year ago by saying he was wiretapped in the Trump Tower, and pretty much everybody poo-pooed that and said, oh, that's, that's not true, obviously. Well, now we know it is true because everything that's come out since then through the Mueller investigation, uh, the dossier, the FBI's shenanigans points to this uh, massive surveillance. And his presidency has also given new life to uh, unearthing the sordid details of the crimes of Bill and Hillary Clinton, especially the latter. Now, all of these things are still in motion. They're still in process and uh, remains to be seen where they're going to go. But in addition, uh, the presidency of, tr of Trump has, uh, has exposed and, and shined an incredible light on the complete corruption of the American mainstream media to an extent that I don't think any of us could have ever imagined was possible, and which is why that uh, when we've convened on this program and when I've written many articles for the Hagman Report and for American Thinker, they have focused on the mainstream media, the cable news wars, and Fox News Channel in particular, because Fox News remains to this day the only fair and balanced, the only mainstream media outlet approaching a fair and balanced uh, review of the Trump administration and every other important issue. And that, of course, has been confirmed now by independent studies, including at Harvard University Shorenstein Center, which confirm that Fox News is about 50-50 pro and con with its coverage of President Trump. The rest of the media is in the 90th percentile for being anti-Trump in their coverage. 
And, of course, that situation is getting worse and worse as time goes on. The immigration issue has been brought to the fore. Sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, the role of Antifa and these domestic terrorists who take to the streets now. The economy, the growth and the revival of the American economy is largely, if not exclusively, due to the presidency of Donald Trump. The repeal of the Obamacare mandate and the beginning of the unraveling of that abomination called Obamacare. Of course, the tax cut that was passed shortly before Christmas by the Republican Congress and was signed into law by President Trump. So the foreign policy changes. We're no longer a country that's leading from behind as we were during the Obama years. And, of course, we're seeing momentum in the Middle East, in North Korea, Red China, Iran, Cuba. All of these things are being shaken up because of the presidency of Donald Trump. We do have the exposure of the corruption with sexual harassment, part of which Trump may be responsible for because the leftists are still gunning for him for the allegations against him that came out in 2016 and that are still bubbling below the surface. But that whole existence of the hashtag MeToo campaign is at least partly accountable to President Trump. And I would also argue that it's one of the many irons in the fire that the left have there in order to, at a moment, try to ratchet it up so that they can have one more thing to try to take him down when the real effort to remove him from the presidency gains momentum later this year. So that's just my list off the top of my head of things, news developments in this year that derived largely, if not exclusively, from President Donald Trump's administration. And I think as we sit here on January 4th, 2018, with the incredible breaking news that's happened in the last 24 to 36 hours, we better hold on to our hats now because we ain't seen nothing like we're going to see in this year, 2018, is my prediction. Well, that's a great, I mean, issue by issue, point by point, Peter. That was very comprehensive. And you're right in so much of what you said. And into 2018, I mean, the media, for instance, we have seen the media throw every and anything at Donald Trump uh, all their lies, all their deceit, all their whining. Um, they oppose any and everything that he does and says, even if it puts them on the wrong side, on the side of terrorists, on the side of, uh, you know, pedophilia, it doesn't matter. Do you think that the uh, Trump derangement syndrome, as it's been called, in the media is going to even further increase in 2018, or do you think they're going to wise up a little bit? I'm afraid that it's going to increase, Joe. In fact, well, here's an example of what's happening. The television, cable television news ratings for last night, that is Wednesday, January 3rd, show a strong win for the night by MSNBC, which with CNN is a very far left wing and anti-Trump pro-resistance news channel. And they really wiped out Sean Hannity. Actually, they beat the Fox programming in all of prime time. It was one of the biggest victories 
in a single day that they've had yet. And How did they do Han- that, Peter? Well, uh, you know, I have to look at Sean Hannity having taken 17 days off during Christmas. And, you know, okay, he needed a vacation, but, uh, you know, when, when the key marquee host is gone, a lot of the viewers drop out of the habit of tuning in and they go elsewhere. Now, that wouldn't totally account for it, but I think it might be an unfortunate sign that this uh, grassroots momentum that is being stoked up by the propaganda masters at the top uh, are having an impact. They are going to the news and following the news that is continuing to denigrate and resist and try to destroy the presidency of Donald Trump. And what we've seen in the last, uh, not even 36 hours yet, since the story broke about Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, uh, you know, which has been the lead news story for ever since, since uh, yesterday, late morning, Eastern Time. Of course, that is very problematic, that book, whether it's true or not, is very problematic for the future of Donald Trump. And I think there's two possibilities when I look at that book. And, I've, of course, I haven't read the entire book. It will be uh, published fast tomorrow morning. It's going to be out instead of next Tuesday, which was the original plan. But uh, substantial parts of it have been published in The Hollywood Reporter and in New York Magazine with additional citations in The Guardian of London, England. And I've read and try to digest all of them. And Michael Wolff is an interesting writer. He has a long career. He has a lot of credibility, but then he has people who point out that he's uh, shaved a lot of facts in his career, too, and even made stories up. And, in fact, the Washington Post, of all places, yesterday ran a critical article about Michael Wolff, uh, maybe preparing the mainstream media for saying, you know, let's... Uh, take care here that we don't go whole hog into accepting what Michael Wolff has said in case he, his claims are disproven. I think what may have happened was that Wolff, who has actually written some fairly objective articles about the cable news wars and Fox News, and he was close to Roger Ailes and attended his funeral uh, last May, I think Wolf probably uh, started hanging around the White House, the West Wing, as he has reported, uh, maybe with somewhat of an open mind, and of course in picking up the gossip there and the backbiting. And, you know, any journalist will tell you that when you spend a lot of time researching a story and interviewing people, uh, you're going to wind up with so much material and you can make any kind of story out of it that you want. Because even one person who you might be interviewing repeatedly is going to tell you contradictory things in the course of repeated interviews. So a, a skillful Wordsmith can really create something almost out of whole cloth. Of course, he claims he has all of his interviews on are recorded on tape or digital media, so we shall see. But I think what probably happened was uh, he got a lot of uh, dirt and backbiting comments from the people he was interviewing in the White House, close to President Trump. And uh, let's face it. Would a book that was more fair and objective about President Trump at this point have the potential of being a bestseller? I don't think so. Instead, the red meat to toss to the media and the the political structure and and uh, you know the potential readership is the inside story because it's working 
that kind of theme is completely compatible and complementary now to this emerging theme that Trump is unqualified for the office. Today, CNN, the Wolf Blitzer broadcast, which I forced myself to watch, devoted at least half of the hour to this sensational story. They came up with breaking news that in December, members of Congress convened a quiet meeting with psychiatrists, or one or more psychiatrists from Yale University, who gave them, these members of Congress, mostly Democrats, of course, quote, evidence that Donald Trump is a sick man and should not be serving in the presidency. So this book, of course, coming along with these lurid stories of the supposed imbalance of Donald Trump is going to only add grist to the mill there. And one of the things I pointed out on my brief BBC interview this morning, they asked me, the question was, where did I think this was all going? Did I think Trump could survive? And I mentioned that I've been around long enough to actually cover the Watergate scandal over four decades ago as a very young man going to school in Washington, D.C. and getting my start in journalism then. And something that really reminds me of that period now is the drip, drip, drip of new revelations and attacks on a daily basis now. And those eventually brought down Richard Nixon, despite the fact that he was one of the most popular presidents of all time, even as long as five months after the Watergate break-in. He was elected by a huge landslide, winning 49 states against his opponent, George McGovern, that year. But over the next year plus, they took him down. Now, Donald Trump, of course, started out in a far weaker position in terms of public approval, which is now supposedly at best in the low 40s. And I even saw one poll that claimed that 44% of the American people now believe that he should be impeached. And even if you think those polls are somewhat pumped up, I think there's probably a lot of truth there because many of the people I know, acquaintances from my past, would certainly be among that 44 or whatever percent. But the point here is that these stories, which are coming fast and furious now, day by day, with almost the entire media, well, really the entire media with the sole exception of Fox News, are just dumping on Trump day after day after day, either manufacturing stories or taking one of his tweets and blowing up or doing anything they can with any material they can get their hands on. And, you know, I don't see this as having a positive outcome. And one other parallel with the situation during Watergate, the opposition party, that is the Democrats, are very similar today. They are the only issue they really have going, and some of their leading Democrats have been promising this since Trump was inaugurated last January. They've been saying they want him impeached, and they keep introducing resolutions of impeachment in the House of Representatives, and they're getting more and more of their members of Congress to support this as they are getting more and more support among their constituencies to support this. And that's similar to what went on in the 1970s. The Democrats eventually 
threw everything into the policy of impeaching Richard Nixon because they really didn't have much else to go on, which is why Nixon was a popular president until they really went after him with the help of the mainstream media eventually. But again, the Democratic Party today is absolutely bankrupt, I think we would agree. And what are their positions? Socialism, socialist health care, a stand-down foreign policy, a weakening of the military. I mean, there was some Democrat leader on CNN today, I forget which one now, saying they were, of course, going to object to Trump's plan to have more money spent to rebuild our weakened military, which was severely hampered during the eight years of Barack Hussein Obama. So the Democrats are into a, they're still into leading from behind. They're total socialist, radical party. As you mentioned, Keith Ellison is now, you know, who's emerging as one of the leaders of the Democrat Party, is associating himself with a terrorist, domestic terrorist organization, Antifa. I believe they have been labeled a terrorist group by the Department of Homeland Security, I think it was. So this is what's going on with the Democrats, but the only issue they've got is impeach Donald Trump. And everywhere you look in the media, whether in the popular culture, daytime programs like The View, nighttime, late night shows with the jokers who host those programs, it's all anti-Trump day after day, night after night, virtually every minute. And if he can somehow sustain himself through this assault, it's, you know, it's going to be at least a minor miracle. Yeah, you know, and this is a really interesting point of conversation as this year we have the first midterm elections for Trump's term in office. And we've talked about this in the last few weeks. Historically, the party of the president in their first term in office, their midterm elections historically go the other way, kind of like we saw with Obama, where the Republicans took over the House and Senate after Obama's election during his first midterm. And there is some concerns that we will see that, especially because of the polarization of Donald Trump. But as you just pointed out, Peter, and I agree with this 100%, the left is going to have to find issues to get behind and to champion. I don't believe they're going to be able to run solely on an anti-Trump platform. And I do agree that, you know, the impeachment talks seem to gain traction some weeks and then other weeks they die down. But I have a hard time believing, even if they do in the midterms take over the House and Senate, that they could get him impeached, specifically if there is no actual crime or, you know, thing they can point to to say, hey, this is you did this, so we got to impeach you. I know my dad likes to talk about the 25th Amendment, but still that's a very far reach. Well, that's Plan B. It would be something, in my view, Peter, 25th Amendment plan. Uh, or, or if they can't get them on that, if they can't get them on Russia, they'll go for the 25th, diminished capacity. And, and meanwhile, and you remember her block, her block from, uh, mm-hmm. the cartoon from the McCarthy era. Look what they did, how they affected, how, how that one cartoonist affected public opinion about her, uh, about Joe McCarthy. And people, again, people need to know history. But, um, they're, they're skewering him with political cartoons. I mean, plan B, Joe, I think is, you know, 25th Amendment Plan C, of course, would be the ultimate uh, takedown via or, uh, all of JFK, in my view. 
But go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, Joe, I hope you're right. I really hope that your analysis is correct. The jury's still out. Uh, we don't have a crystal ball. It's the $64 question we're dealing with. But, you know, one unknown here is what's going to happen with the Mueller investigation. Uh, there are a lot of indications that he's going to go for broke there. His target is President Trump. And if they can't get him on Russian collusion, uh, they're going to get him on or try to get him on financial crimes of either his closest associates, his family, or maybe even him. Or they're going to uh, ratchet up the obstruction of justice charge. They've got so many possibilities here well, that you know, it, it really boggles the mind. Peter, let's talk about the obstruction of justice charge because this one I can't wrap my mind around how they would actually provide evidence and make a, a credible argument for obstruction of justice. If you remember when Comey was still the head of the FBI and the, the, the uh, starting the talk, well, the continued talk about the Trump-Russia uh, collusion, we had Comey testify in front of the House a number of times, and also the exchanges privately between Trump and Comey, where Trump mentioned that Comey stated to him he was not under investigation. It was the attempts by Russia to meddle in the election. And I think he also reiterated those sentiments during a, while he was under oath testifying in front of the House. But, and then to see his, his being fired after he reopened the Hillary Clinton email investigation and all the top Democratic officials and bobbleheads from Maxine Waters to Nancy Pelosi said they, he has no credibility and, you know, basically threw him under the bus for Trump to turn around and fire him for what we know now, even today, what we see from the Hill, more evidence of Comey, uh, you know, covering up the criminal charges for Clinton. I don't know. I mean, just that alone, what he did for the Clinton uh, investigation is grounds enough to fire him, and Trump was well within his rights. And to, to try to use that as an obstruction of justice charge after we find out he's leaking information, after we know he exonerated Hillary Clinton when she was found dead to rights to be in criminal violation of the law, I cannot wrap my mind around how they would be able to uh, with a straight face, bring those obstruction charges against him. Joe, I think you're being too rational <laughs> and too historical here. And uh, I, I hate to say, I don't think that's how the world of the deep swamp, the deep state, the shadow government works, especially now that they have the entire mainstream media in their pocket as their propaganda arm. Again, that we've never seen anything like it. They could also, you know, try to ratchet up obstruction by claiming that uh, Donald Trump ordered uh, Comey, when he was FBI director, to go easy on uh, General Flynn. And now that General Flynn has pled guilty to a felony, you know, he's a convicted felon. So it, it, rationality, I think, enters into the picture only limitedly which is why the outlets that we have left, or the outlet, Fox News, and, of course, the alternative media, which is what we're dealing with here, are so important because... Uh, and, and then the other the other uh, aspect, and I touched on this in several paragraphs in my uh, New Year's message article, which ran on the Hagman Report on December 31st exclusively, and I was thinking about... Uh, the viral nature of, yes, there it is, the viral nature of our social media and how I'm getting a better understanding of it now that I've dipped my toe into Twitter for the past four months and I've seen some very interesting developments there. Uh, and, and 
Oh, and what also brought this to mind was an article I read in the Los Angeles Times, which I believe was dated December 13th. And it was a lengthy article trying to explain and predict the future of social media and information and how we would get news. And the conclusion was that video would be extremely important and would be basically the thing in the future. Now, that might be obvious to many of us who pay attention to the direction things are going in. But I read this article several times really closely, and I never fully understood it because I think the writer and any writer, any human, is incapable of even describing how viral social media works. And evidence of that is the fact that the successful election to the presidency of Donald Trump was not really predicted by almost everyone who was making predictions right up until Election Day 2016. And I think, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, obviously, that these unknown quantities of social media, of the way we are exchanging information now from alternative sources and also critiquing mainstream sources that literally go through the universe in a totally new way, using Twitter, Facebook, and even email, the other social media that exists today. And nobody's really got a handle of it. A lot of these analysts, even ones who work at Silicon Valley, think they can predict how this is going to pan out. But when you go back in the recent history of technology and you look at the predictions that were being made in the 1980s, the 1990s, the early 2000s for personal computing and the early days of the Internet, none of those predictions really panned out like they were being predicted at the time. In fact, the emergence and the explosive growth of the personal smartphone, which didn't happen until 2007, was largely unpredicted right up until the time that it hit the market. And it has completely transformed. That technology alone has completely transformed everything in our lives with no barriers anymore. And it's also fostered the incredible growth of social media. Twitter and Facebook came on the scene shortly after the introduction of the first smartphones in 2007. And now most people in the United States are getting most of their news from social media news feeds. Yeah, and that's, you know, that is troublesome to me because Obama said something about the social media echo chamber, I believe it was at the beginning of this week, which I did have to agree to him on one of the points he made, where he said that when you're dealing with news and social media, getting your news on social media, people have a tendency to only be subjected to or share news that are in line with their own beliefs, basically creating an echo chamber, no matter you know which side of the aisle you're on. And and I do see that a lot where you have the the social media is used instead of gathering information it is it is more often than not used to to gather information that support the conclusion that you've already reached and you're looking for pieces to to help uh put that together and we see this you know all across the board and it does um it does make things a little bit more complicated especially when we talk about the political division in this country because um 
I don't know, you can use Twitter as an example or Facebook, a Facebook group or page. Um, how many, you know, conservatives or, or Christian conservatives are going to be hanging out in a BuzzFeed uh, Facebook page, you know, sharing information? And if mm-hmm. you did do that, how much of that information are the people on that BuzzFeed page uh, going to pay attention to your link or, or your story? And they're going to put any credibility into it at all because they see it's from the other side. They, I would imagine they wouldn't even read it. But this is one of the problems with the social media. And another thing, Peter, we've been talking about this week, I've been seeing this disturbing trend of people sending me YouTube videos as proof of something. Somebody just talking on a YouTube video, making a claim, and all of a sudden that is equal to proof of whatever their claim is being factual. I don't know if, if you understand what I'm saying, but it is, um, you know, the, the standard uh, laws of journalism, if you will, need to be followed now more than ever. And if you're going to have your own personal bias in a piece, uh, you know, make sure you label it as such, like this is my opinion or I think this. Today we see this this terrible habit of, of journalists and writers putting their own personal spin and beliefs in their articles as though they are facts of what they are arguing. And, I mean, it has become so sloppy. And you think with the Internet and the spread of information, it would help people... Uh, actually, you know, be able to learn more, to discern better, and, and to have a, a much uh, clearer picture and a look from both sides of the aisle. But instead, it has it has sharpened, uh, you know, the, the divide so greatly, and um, really, it, it's doing no good at all. It's doing a lot of harm because people are only uh, paying attention to information that they believe to be true or wish to be true, and that is very detrimental to the mindset of the country. Joe, I think your comments there about social media are uh, one of the best summaries I've heard of uh, the dark side, the dangers of this, of putting all our eggs in the social media basket. And I couldn't agree with you more. I actually, even now that I'm using social media, Twitter only, and and cautiously, and hopefully carefully. Uh, I still feel like social media as a whole, its development and its pervasiveness now, uh, is what we used to call a Faustian bargain. That is, it's uh, it's a deal with the devil. Yes, it has some, some positive sides, and the election of Donald Trump may be a result of, of one of them, but it's I think it's a net negative in terms of people not uh, being able to... Well, for example... A majority of people now, Internet users, are accessing the Internet on their so-called smartphones. And I don't know how you can do any serious... Well, you can't. You can't do any serious, in-depth reading, research, saving of research that you find on smartphones. They're largely designed for short videos. And the L.A. Times article that I mentioned about the future of news and information said that the, uh, the, the media of the future that people will be getting almost everything from, whether it's entertainment, news, whatever, is going to be come down to 40-second long videos that they watch on their phone, some of them without even audio, even a silent video. And even now, you'll, I'll go to a, a website for an article and some stupid video starts playing automatically, and I, I can't even mm-hmm. shut it down because that's what's drawing. And of course, if that page is optimized for a cell phone, that's what the cell phone using visitor to that site is going to see. So I'm deeply concerned about where this is all going. And of course, in recent weeks, we've had 
several whistleblowers, in effect, who were original investors and big shots in the social media business who have since left, and they're just counting their billions now that they've cashed out. But they are revealing the dark side of social media from its inception of the negative designs that the people who created Facebook and Twitter had in order to capture the minds of the user and addict them to this media. And they knew that it was not going to be good for humanity, including for our physical health, by following and watching the world in the palm of our hand on a small screen instead of actually going out there and engaging people and seeing the real natural world. I mean, these things are going out of fashion. So, you know, it's a big picture that we're talking about here, trying to connect the dots as usual. And it's like one thing connects and leads to another. But, again, I just say hold on to your hat because this is going to be a wild ride this year. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And, you know, seeing how crazy the media, the anti-never-Trumpers on the right and on the left have been and the things that they've been taught. Look at all the crazy stories from the last year. What's one of the biggest takeaways from last year in the Trump administration and the media? Is it fake news? Is it just the constant hostility uh, is it the Russia investigation? Is there one? I mean, what what will we remember in Trump's first year in office? I know for sure we will remember that it wasn't Hillary Clinton. We'll remember a number of his accomplishments, but we'll also remember how badly he was treated by the media. And earlier, Peter, you went over those statistics of how Trump was covered via Fox News. I think you said it was fifty-fifty, a positive and negative at Fox. But all other networks, I know we saw, he only got 5% 90, positive 91 coverage. to 97% negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I agree that that's going to continue. Um, do mm-hmm. you think and there is a certain section of the population, and as we see with the Maddow ratings, that love to watch the hatred on President Trump that the media dishes out? Now, I have my own reasons for watching that sometimes because I find it pretty funny and entertaining, but I... I want to know, you think this trend is going to continue, and uh, are they changing minds of people out there, the low-information voter? I think they are, Joe. I think the ratings show it. The uh, so-called late-night shows on broadcast television, Colbert and Fallon and uh, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, their ratings are all going up. The more they do uh, savage attacks, alleged comedic attacks, which aren't funny, on President Trump, so those programs have been turned into political propaganda. MSNBC is having its best year ever. Uh, a year or two ago, they were actually, I think, behind CNN in the ratings. Now they've pulled way ahead of CNN and uh, are, are beating Fox News, which had been the ratings leader for about 15 years among the three major news channels. So I'm concerned and I fear that the future will bring only more of the same. Now, there is a hope, of course, that the accomplishments, the actual real accomplishments of President Trump in his first year and ongoing, hopefully, into his second year, soon to begin after January 20th this year, will help to wake people up, including even the low-information voters and even including some Democrats who might be more middle-of-the-road mainstream Democrats because we will expect to see uh, benefits from the tax cut legislation that was passed into law 
in the repeal of the Obamacare mandate in the turbocharging of the economy. I mean, today, again, I think the stock market broke another all-time high closing record in the Dow Jones averages today. So, you know, more money is going to be in people's pockets, and the dark and dirty Democrats out there naysaying everything and claiming that socialism and more government control and welfare and handouts and weakness in foreign policy is the answer, you know, that's hopefully going to be seen as more and more absurd as time goes on and as people can actually measure the reality of their lives versus the BS propaganda that they're getting from the Democrats and the mainstream media. Although, never underestimate, unfortunately, the ignorance of the American voter because it's there and it's led to so many ridiculous victories of fraudulent candidates in the past. And I recollect, I remember somebody saying once that our country really took a deadly turn for the worse on election night 1982 when Bill Clinton was elected. And I agree with that analysis. 92. I think the last 25 years since that event have been horrendous, and he and his completely corrupt administration largely set the stage for this new kind of pop culture president. We remember he played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall's late night program and put on the shades, and, you know, he was the cool hip guy. And that's gravitas, by the way. I had to throw that in there. You know, that's the ultimate definition of gravitas. Seriously. And started the corruption of the FBI. An expert I heard earlier today was pointing out that the true corruption of the FBI began under the Clintons when 900 files from the FBI showed up in Hillary Clinton's care because they were using those secret files to presumably blackmail their enemies. So that's where it all began. And, of course, Barack Hussein Obama picked up the thread after the eight years of the Bush administration, which were no vacation either, obviously. And Hussein Obama really took it on steroids and really put the whole package together, and that's what's still largely running the show today. Even though we have President Trump, we still have former President Obama in the wings there with his consigliere Valerie Jarrett pulling the strings of the shadow government and the deep state or certainly helping to. And I think they have really yet to show their true power and their true stuff and yet to really strike the attempted coup de grace with all the power that they have, all the people in the federal government and even in state governments who are Democrats by need now because their careers depend on the largesse of the Democratic Party keeping the central government statist model going into the perpetual future here. All right. That silence was actually us absorbing your prowess. I had to come up for air there. No. It's amazing to listen to you because, and folks, I just want to let people know, Peter Chowka, follow him on Twitter at P. Chowka. And he catches articles, American Thinker and Hagman Report. I was just thinking as you were talking, go ahead, Joe. 
is it a follow-up to what Peter was just talking about? No, no. Actually, it was going to be a, a diversion from that. But, but just real it, quick, Peter, what are some of the things you think Trump can do differently? To obviously, no matter what he does, the media is going to attack him, lie about him, uh, lie to the people, uh, obviously about what he does. But what are some of the things you think Trump can do better to try to reach out to that maybe uh, the base that's been brainwashed by? Uh, the the left and the TV that and the media that we see, or maybe some independents who are on the fence, not liking some of the things they saw throughout his administration. What are the, some of the things you think he can do better in 2018 to kind of uh, bring those uh, voters back towards uh, his support or new voters or new support for him from those voters? Things like tweet less or be more. Um, I guess he's not going to ever censor himself on Twitter. Any ideas? Nor should he. But go ahead. Well, the first thing to be said, Joe and Doug, is that uh, it's hard to sit here and tell Donald Trump or give him suggestions as to what he should do because he's done pretty well despite all the slings and arrows hurled at him. However, like many other people, I would like to see him get his uh, tweeting at least a bit more under control. I, I like the fact that he uses Twitter and communicates directly with his followers. I think that's really state of the art. But uh, every once in a while, in fact, not infrequently, he tweets things which just seem to uh, get him into trouble and, uh, you know, that he maybe shares some blame for. But, you know, we shall see there. You know, if you believe the, uh, the Wolf book that's coming out tomorrow, as well as some of the other coverage, uh, President Trump often has people around him, his top advisors, who are advising him to get his tweeting under control or whatever, and he just uh, doesn't listen. So we shall see. But, you know, I, I I would hope and like and expect to see him continue work on his foreign policy goals. I think he had really an outstanding year last year on every one of his foreign trips, none of which was reported fairly obje- and objectively in the American media. You really had to take a very close look at the raw footage that was coming out or what you could find on the Internet to really see how he was being accorded uh, almost a hero's welcome when he went to China and uh, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, you know, really shaking things up, I think, in a positive way. And uh, hopefully we will see benefits from that as, as the year goes on. And again, the economy, if he can continue to focus and focus like a laser on what needs to be done to restore our economy, which is going to be the number one thing to make America great again, in my opinion, then I think that's going to incrementally at least change people's minds, including the minds of a lot of folks who might not have been his supporters to begin with. I do know several people, acquaintances from my more distant past, who are hardcore leftists, and they actually started to come around to a slightly more moderate position uh, vis-a-vis uh, President Trump, even when he was a candidate, which surprised me because they were smart enough to, to really discern the complete corruption of Hillary Clinton and the Democrat Party. And I, I think they are uh, they're seeing that some of the things that Trump has done, despite their leftist orientation, have actually been good for the country and maybe good for the world, not 100%, not uniformly, because many of them are still into the whole global warming thing. But, you know, I thought if those people can be uh, at least brought to a middle ground, 
then that shows that there is some kind of hope. And, you know, hopefully as we see the economy continue to improve, and of course the unknown quantity again, as we discussed, is what happens with the various investigations, including the Mueller investigation, what happens with the midterm elections this fall, and I think anybody who tries to predict that is going to be left holding the bag just as they were in 2016. But, you know, we can hope and pray that the Democrats will not get control of either House of Congress because that would really be bad news. And other than that, we're just going to have to see and pray and hope and continue to come together to report on the things that we're finding, and hopefully our audience will be there with us and will be growing as well. And I appreciate your mention of my Twitter, which is illustrated on the monitor behind me, just pchowka, C-H-O-W-K-A. And the more followers we have on Twitter, as well as following the Hagman Report and each of you individually, the stronger we get because the more followers we have, obviously when they retweet, it goes out to all of their followers, and that is what creates the baseline of the viral media. I'm really getting a sense of that now that I've been on Twitter for just over four months and have over 2,400 followers, and they're really, really good people, which is why I wanted to write my New Year's message directed at my Twitter followers. I don't even like that term, followers, but it's the one we have to use. That was a class act, by the way. That was a good message. Thank you. And I did want to post that at the Hagman Report because it was a personal piece, and I feel I've gotten the best response on Twitter from people who came to my Twitter from the Hagman Report or from either of you or John's Twitter or the Hagman Report official Twitter. They're very dedicated, very well-informed, very intelligent, and they're great followers and friends to have. We have the best audience, I'll tell you that right now. Peter, last minute, you've got the last word. Go ahead. Wrapping it up with a bow, the days ahead are going to be really fascinating. I think vis-a-vis this really big story, the number one story right now, the Michael Wolff book, which is going to be released tomorrow morning. So the media is going to be going wild when they have their hands on all 300 pages because we've only seen about one-tenth of that so far, and look at the firestorm it's caused. But we have to take it easy with that, take it slow, and see where it all lands after the facts really come out. Amen, brother. Hey, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Peter Chaka catches articles at American Thinker, Hagman Report. Follow him on Twitter at Pete Peter, we'll be talking to you. Thank you so very much for all Always of Always a pleasure. Time. God bless. All Thank right. you. Folks, we're going to be right back. Network break. Sir, where are we at? Hagman Report, HagmanReport.com. That's our website. 
Twitter at Hagman Report, of course, in our individual uh, uh, individual uh, social networking feeds. You know, great, great uh, Peter Chaka, fantastic, of course, and love his work. And this hour, we've got Phil Haney. He's a uh, former DHS under Obama. He, he joined us once before. Extremely intelligent, knows a lot about what's going on. Uh, Philip, uh, Phil Haney, that is. And, uh, what is it? See something, say nothing. Remember, you remember folks us having him on. Before we get to our guest, look, I told you yesterday, I'm going to tell you again today, but I want to know, have you done it? Have you gone to America? Have you gone to, have you gone to your, wherever you download podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or whatever, have you downloaded American History Tell- Tellers? Have you subscribed to American History Tellers? Have you done that yet? You've got to. I'm going to tell you, I love history. You know that. I talk about history all of the time. Past is prologue. We can learn from our history. How well do you really know your history? Now, I'm talking about the stories that make up America and Americans. Everything from the words that we speak, ideas that we share, values that we admire, and the freedoms we defend can all be traced to our shared history. American History Tellers. There's a new podcast called American History Tellers that puts you inside the shoes, in the shoes of everyday people, and in the time, in the place, or the event that made history. The Cold War, for example, or the Revolution, Prohibition, the Space Race, Gold Rush, you name it. And they show you how our history affected them, their families, and affects you today. American History Tellers is hosted by Lindsey Graham. No, not that Lindsey Graham, Eric. Stop it. No, of course not. And just in case you're wondering... Again, it's not that Lindsey Graham. The Lindsey Graham that we have is a history buff teaming up with PhD historians to bring you the just a new take on history telling. I've listened to this personally. I love it. I I I I love this this podcast. It's got my personal endorsement. I'm I'm telling you, it's a first person's perspective with sound design to really get history stuck in your mind. Let me tell you something. You know history. You know current events. Now, the first six episodes for this brand new series that debuted yesterday will cover the Cold War. The show premieres, did premiere, that is to say, yesterday, January 3rd. I kind of teased it on the second. I teased it. I gave you enough time. American History Tellers. Subscribe. Go to and sub- subscribe and listen to American History Tellers or uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have problems with that, just grab a teenager and tell them you want to download this or you want to subscribe to American History Tellers. And I guarantee you, your teenager, your your son, your daughter, or that uh, that, that really smart neighbor of yours will hook you right up or you can do it American History Tellers remember that name American History Tellers and you know what I'm interested to hear what you think after you subscribe listen to it listen to, to the episodes I'm interested to what you in what you think because I think it's fabulous American History Tellers that's American History Tellers available Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your your podcasts now with us is Phil Haney yeah, this gentleman is uh a trained entomologist, a retired DHS employee. He uses skill of observation and attention to detail, uh, attention to detail at the Customs and Border Enforcement, uh, Protection Agency to keep Americans safe from, hey, bad people. We've got them with us now to talk about current events, everything from the Mueller investigation to, 
you know, what's going on over in Iran and everything in between. Phil Haney, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming back with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Man, I'll tell you what, you, you, your last appearance, it was, I, so, so many people said, wow, I, you know, what, what a great, uh, what a great man, what a great content, what great content. Um, can we start out, if you don't mind, can we, can we, can we kind of get your assessment of what's going on with what I like to call the soft coup against our government? That is to say the Mueller investigation. Well, we wouldn't be talking about it right now at all, would we? If Hillary Clinton had become president. That's true. Yeah, you're right. No, we so they're right off the bat to be thankful for because, uh, I can promise you having been an insider, that if Hillary Clinton had won the presidency, that most of these issues that we're discussing now more openly, with more confidence and encouragement, wouldn't be on the table at all. We wouldn't be able to find out the first thing about any of it. You know, they wouldn't be looking at Huma Abedin right now. Oh, yes. You know, I'm so glad that there is some insight or some uh, um, inspection of Abedin because I believe Muslim Brotherhood... Uh, in my view, traitor with respect to uh, her Muslim Brotherhood attachments, as well as the email stuff. Um, and, and well, I'm glad that she's getting the attention that uh, that we think she deserves. But uh, yeah, who am I? Refer to it as a soft coup. Yeah, I, yeah. This is one of the aftermaths of it. I talked with Michelle Bachman today. She is a, we're friends, in addition to her being a former member of Congress. She was the very first member of Congress that uh, gave me an audience back in the spring of 2012. And that set off a sequence of events that led to, uh, at this time, more than 60 briefings to members of Congress in the last, now coming on five years. That's basically one a month for the last five years. But it all started with Michelle Bachman. And she was on the House Intelligence Committee at the time. And she just knew, let's say intuitively, let alone factually, that there was something really wrong with this emerging influence of the Muslim Brotherhood within our counterterrorism policy that they had been saturating into uh, the law enforcement arena, into the political arena, and uh, into the social arena, and having an inordinate amount of influence on our policies, both domestic and in foreign arena and so she listened to me and that led to a subsequent sequence of events of briefing members of congress over the last five years and i talked to her today because in june of 2012 she and four other members of congress put out made public letters that they had written to the five different igs inspector generals of the five different branches or agencies of the government closely related to law enforcement. And she asked at that time, or expressed, I should say, in the letters, which you can still find on the web, her concerns about the Muslim Brotherhood, and in particular Huma Abedin, who was, of course, a close aide to Hillary Clinton. And you may remember what happened to Michelle Bachman. They particularly focused on her even though she was only one of five members of Congress, and publicly criticized her and condemned her. And I'm including members of the House, Rogers, Boehner, and McCain, and publicly criticized her for having the audacity 
to even express concerns about the possible links to the Muslim Brotherhood with Abedin. And so I couldn't help it today, going back in my mind to that time in June of 2012 when I was still active duty myself and had provided background information to members of Congress, which is my right to do as a law enforcement officer, to see now five and a half years later that lo and behold, Huma Abedin is coming back to the surface again. And uh, it's a very surreal kind of a form of deja vu to think of where would we have been if we had addressed this five years ago. There probably wouldn't have even been an email scandal because we would have nipped it in the bud. But as it was, even our own elected officials, even on the Republican side, intervened in the process of, instead of allowing the Inspector General to address the nature of the concerns that they wrote in the letter, they intruded themselves into the political process and and stopped it cold. And in, essentially, Michelle Bachman lost her seat in Minnesota over this issue. Can, can you, um, I don't want you to talk out of school here. i got to ask you. Is she going to uh, go for uh, Franken seat? I didn't. I never asked her, and I usually, with my friends in the political arena, I never ask them. I, I just, uh, I don't want to be seen as an opportunist. Understood. And it's easier for me to say that I haven't asked them than to put myself in a position of trying to answer questions that, you know may not be the right time to even try to the, answer. Uh, the, the lost, I, I commend you, the lost art of integrity nowadays in character. Thank you. Um, and, and thanks for taking that approach. Um, okay, so, it, now, that, okay, so, but whom Abedin, look, her cousin was uh, convicted of fraud, deleted emails, partnered with Russian businessmen, of course, whom Abedin's cousin, I'm talking about uh, Omar Aminat, or uh, what's his name? Uh, Aminat, I believe it is. Um and of course, her deletion, Abedin's deletion of emails, Anthony Weiner's wife, we know about the emails on his computer. And of course, her, um, involvement, as you said, in the email criminal cabal here with respect to the classified information. Um, incredible Huma stuff. Huma Abedin's a Rosetta Stone to the whole thing. She's been there all along. She is a very close confidant of Hillary Clinton. And she has been through thick and thin with her. Before she was Secretary of State, all during the time she was Secretary of State, and even till now. And she is first-hand witness of all of it. Now, now she started off, uh, Huma started off as an intern in the White House for the first, uh, for uh, Hillary when she was First Lady. It's my understanding. This is right after she got back from Saudi Arabia, right? And then it's been affiliated with Hillary for quite some time, and you know, on the positive side, Huma would have been the kind of person we would all dream of having as an assistant, bilingual, having access to political uh, leaders in the Middle East. What better uh, confidant could you have if you want to make progress in terms of uh, representing America in the Middle East? But what could have been benign and and have a positive influence turned out to be exactly the opposite. That Huma Abedin followed Hillary Clinton through the Middle East as, as she set it on fire. Yes. 
by promoting the Arab Spring, backing up the Muslim Brotherhood publicly there over in Egypt, and they were just completely bewildered why the American government would ever even conceive of backing the Muslim Brotherhood. Everybody in the Middle East knows exactly who the Muslim Brotherhood. That's like asking here, who's the Gambino family? Or who is the, you know, the famous mobster from Chicago? Is it Elliot Ness or anyway, any famous criminal person in our history? We all know who they were. And in the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East, how many countries have now designated the Muslim Brotherhood? as a yeah. terrorist organization and new countries are coming online as we speak and hopefully in 2018 we will join the roster of countries who have designated the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization which by the way is inexcusable for not having done it already and I don't mean just from Trump in the last year I mean we've known who the Muslim Brotherhood for is at least 10 years and how do we, why do I say that? It's because of the Holy Land Foundation trial that was held in Dallas all the way from 2006 through 2008, finally ended in November of 2008 with guilty verdicts of 102 individuals, um, no, five individuals for 102 counts of support of Hamas, a globally designated terrorist organization. We've known for 10 years who these groups are. But you saw what happened as we started with Michelle Bachman when she even raised the question, what about Huma Abedin? What about the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood? And what happened to her? So that shows you. See, you have to keep in mind, I was still active duty then. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here from my position as a law enforcement officer watching, literally, my own, my country's elected officials make complete fools of themselves in terms of their level of awareness and the statements that they made in public which now of course they can't take back and in time when historians look at this era they're not going to come out very well because this information was available it's not secret it's not classified it was open source readily available if you want to know who the Muslim Brotherhood all you have to do is look on their own website and they tell you exactly what they believe and what their intentions are. It's not a big mystery. You're, you're, you're exactly correct. Our guest, of course, is Phil Haney, uh, a tremendous man. And check out the first interview we did with Phil, yep. where he went through his whole story of what happened to him at the DHS as uh, under the Obama administration as he continued to investigate and document the uh, potential Muslim terrorist groups in this country, uh, putting together databases and all kinds of, uh, you know, just tons of work in, in, in trying to identify and uh, map all this out. And then uh, was really from the inside, what was torn down as investigations were torn down, they were deleted. Uh, the the cases that he had built uh, were, were blocked and, and deleted. And at one time, weren't you even locked out of your, your own uh, systems that you created? I'm so glad you asked me because there was a point I wanted to make in relation to this emerging scandal with or fiasco with uh, Huma Abedin, what is it likely that she's going to get in trouble for? Putting classified emails on her personal Yahoo account so that she could more easily print them out. 
When I was investigated nine times by my own agency, culminating in three simultaneous agencies or investigations from the DOJ, the DHS, and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, my agency, Internal Affairs, one of the things that they tried to do was to find out if I had done exactly what Huma Abedin did, which was to send any of my work-related emails over to my private account. Because we are, as CBP officers, prohibited from using our private account, even at work, period. Nor can we use cell phones, our own cell phones, at work, meaning when we're inside the, 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 the uh, barrier of Customs and Border Protection. So they looked through all of my email and all my phone calls for several years before the period of time when the incidents that they investigated me for, which was related to the Boston bombing, which was April 13, 2013, to find if I had done it once anywhere along the line, breached that rule, and if I had have done it one time, it would have been over. That would have been all they needed to fire me or even put me in jail. One breach of that commonly known prohibition of sharing classified information on your own personal email account, and they tried to find one case where I had done it. And now we find out that people like Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin and even my former boss, Jay Johnson, all had their own private electronic devices that they were transmitting emails one to another that were offline of the system. You, you talk about lawlessness and abrogation of responsibility, integrity, and constitutional duty. That whole structure within the Obama or organization was completely lawless. And it just amazed me it still does to this day the lengths that they went to to try to find a way to discredit me. Yeah. And if it could have put me in jail, they would have done it without blinking an eye. They wouldn't have thought twice about it. But look at the heroic efforts that they make to protect these particular individuals from accountability. Well, you know, um, it, it's amazing the story that you told uh, and your story and what they have done to you. Now, we see, obviously, this trend is continuing, even though we see Trump is in the White House and, and the, the Muslim influence from the White House does not seem to be there anymore. But we see, uh, I saw a clip yesterday on uh, a clip of The View that was showing Whoopi Goldberg and those uh, women, dare I say, talking about the uh, deep state and how Trump is so paranoid if he believes there's a deep state uh, or, or people inside the government working against him, uh, trying to get him impeached and working against the best interest of Americans. They called it paranoid and a conspiracy theorist. But that's exactly what you just described and what you personally went through. And, you know, we see as, uh, you know, these people were working under Obama and basically uh, given a free ride to, to do whatever they wanted to do. Now we see Trump in office and the Obama holdovers, in, even inside the DOJ, the FBI, and I'm sure uh, so many more that have not been made front and center, are working against those best interests. Do you believe uh, what some people are speculating, that uh, the inner circle or the people who are uh, writing out the policies are doing so against 
Donald Trump's wishes and what he is promising to the American people. And I guess to rephrase that, uh, we've seen reports that there are people inside not only the White House, but these different agencies who are not following the mandates and, and orders that are coming down. Instead, they are uh, trying to undermine Trump as much as they can. Well, let's start with a positive answer to your question. Look at Nikki Haley. Okay. Look at the statements that she has been making in the UN vis-a-vis our relationship with countries like Pakistan and Mahmoud Abbas with the Palestinian Authority and our recognition of uh, the danger of the Pakistanis now going to cut off uh, foreign aid to them and uh, same with the Palestinian Authority and Nikki Haley's statements about the acknowledgement of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel backing up President Trump's policies 100% or at least 99%. She did make one statement that I'm a little puzzled about vis-a-vis Hamas last month that 19 members of Congress wrote a letter to to ask her about, and that is that she said they're looking for ways to work with moderate members of Hamas. Well, we've tried that before. There are no moderate members in Hamas or Hezbollah or ISIS or any of those other groups. And... Uh, I haven't heard a response from her to that letter. But other than that, and that's not really completely become policy yet, Nikki Haley is a great example of of uh, supporting and enacting President Trump's motto, which is to make America great again. But let's talk about, for example, Secretary of State Tillerson and some of the policies that decisions that he's made. And I don't really believe that it's Mr. Tillerson per se that has engendered these policies. I think it's his um, team within the State Department, which does address your question. These are the same individuals that were in place in the last administration and probably in the one before that, starting clear back to the time of Bush and then through all the way through Obama up until now. I don't think it's any secret the American State Department has been pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian, and uh, much less supportive of Israel uh, for quite a long time. Secretary Tillerson went to Gutter, no, yes, Gutter, and signed a form, excuse me, signed a letter of understanding with the government there that they were going to be our new partners to stop funding of terrorism while not mentioning that they're harboring leaders of both Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood highest level leaders there in their country while at the same time neighboring gulfs like Saudi Arabia were trying to they were literally barricading Qatar because of their support of the Muslim Brotherhood and also their emerging alliance with Iran and Turkey and Secretary Tillerson came in and undertook that entire effort without even acknowledging or cons- consulting with our other Gulf allies and undercut their effort. That was a serious mistake because it'll make it harder for us here in the domestic side of the coin to designate the Muslim Brotherhood when the State Department is, is overlooking the fact that one of our main allies in the Middle East is harboring them. 
Another bad policy move was failure to acknowledge the referendum of the Kurdish people for autonomy. Secretary Tillerson said it was an invalid referendum that he would not acknowledge it. The only country in the world that did acknowledge it was Israel. And I believe the reason why Secretary Tillerson refused to acknowledge the referendum is because he was pressured by our other allies in the Middle East not to acknowledge the relationship between Israel and the Kurdish people because they don't want Israel influence anywhere in the Middle East. And so they put pressure on him. And so in a, as a result, now the Kurds are under attack from the east with Iran and from the south from Iraq. So we threw allies under the bus again. And it makes us look unreliable. And we've dishonored ourselves in terms of uh, we don't keep our word. We don't back up the people. Why would anybody want to be a friend of ours in the Middle East when we throw them under the bus like that? It's a good point. Well, and well said, yeah. Two, of, uh, two examples of uh, foreign policy statements or decisions that have been made that are not ultimately in our best interest. Can they be remedied? Yes, they can be remedied. And I hope they will be. And I hope that President Trump's team grows in maturity and and uh, gets more in alignment as in the weeks and months ahead into 2018. But President Trump, nonetheless, is forging ahead, isn't he? Yeah. And some of these decisions, like to cut off foreign aid and other ones that are going to be coming up soon, are going to make some of these um, individuals placed within the different agencies in our government neutralized, like acknowledging the capital of Jerusalem, capital of Israel is Jerusalem. That that uh, put a lot of people who were against it. You know, it just settled the issue, didn't it? It I mean, did. Most people were saying, don't do it, don't do it. And he did it anyway. So I believe that President Trump is gaining footing in, in terms of his uh, foreign policy skills and that we're going to see some more very positive steps in the future, both in foreign policy and also in terms of domestic policy. And that would be, in particular, immigration uh, immigration reform. Also, I hope that he will be closer to designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. In, I, I think, yeah, that's we, we've got to really kind of push for that. I believe and make mm-hmm. our voices heard. You know, and, and I think, I think one of the uh, weakest uh, exploits of Donald Trump is the fact that he's not a politician. Uh, however, that's one of his strongest points and uh, suits, in my view. He's not a politician, and he's not afraid. I mean, it's he's using common sense, which is a rather a refreshing approach to the uh, swamp rats in D.C. And um, he, he also protects your your people, you know, uh, your former people, in my view. Uh, he's pro enforcement and pro-military. Yeah. And what a big sigh of relief. Oh, yeah. Uh, the guys on the line that took the oath to help protect our country... These are the finest people in our generation. They are the ones that are willing to give their life to help protect their families, friends, and neighbors, and country. And right. they're unsung heroes in most cases. It takes a special person to be a law enforcement officer. It's not a gimme kind of job. 
It's a hard job. You have to qualify. You have to go through boot camp. You have to go through a lot. It puts a strain on your family. You put yourself at risk. And why would you do it? Not Unless for the money. Mm-mm. Well, no, you can make a living at it, but it's not something you're going to become. Right, right. I, I, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you're putting your life on the line. Uh, you, you look at these athletes and entertainers, you, they get paid millions of dollars and compare that to, of course, the, you know, law enforcement officer who, uh, every day goes out and doesn't know whether that, you know, they're going to come home or not. So, um, but. Yeah, you can't interview active duty law enforcement officers because they're not allowed to talk in public. That's right. But right. if you were able to, you would hear stories, friend, that would bring you to tears and all, and, would also make you proud and it would also make you infuriated and angry at the um, handicaps that law enforcement has to face, not to mention military, because it's the same problem. It's called rules of engagement. Mm. And going back to the Obama administration, he implemented rules of engagement basically like barriers in the road to slow down every single one of the different agencies within the federal government. Customs and Border Protection, ICE, Border Patrol, and the military. And and that's why for year after year, the whole time that I was active duty, the federal officers in DHS, again, ICE, CBP, and Border Patrol, had the lowest morale of any federal agency. Year after year. Why was that? Because they didn't like their job? No. It was because they were unable to do their job. And they knew it. They were watching people literally walk right across the border. And I saw it in a more abstract way because I was in the intelligence area and I saw people literally coming into the country that there's no way they should have ever been allowed to come in. So you have the physical crossing, you know, the southern border, and then you have the other kinds of crossing coming in on flights and ships and or with specially designated visas and passports at the invitation of our own government, knowing full well that these very individuals were members of terrorist organizations. That happened during my time over and over again. In fact, you might remember if I talked about what was called a hands-off list. It's in the book. And that hands-off list, I still don't know to this day how many people were actually on it, but I know that there wasn't one very high-level Muslim Brotherhood member that was on it who was let to come into the country despite all of our efforts to prevent him from coming in. We were overridden, and that was directly from Hillary Clinton and Janet Napolitano, DHS and Secretary of State. And Secretary of State and DHS, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, is the one that shut my case down, the Tablighi Jamaat case. And now we find out that the Hezbollah investigation was shut down. Now you're talking about Project Cassandra, right? Project Cassandra. When I worked at the National Targeting Center, the unit I was in is called the Advanced Targeting Team. ATT, we called it. And I'm not bragging, but I'm stating a fact that it was the most elite unit at the National Targeting Center. It was the best of the best. The subject matter excellent uh, experts par excellence. The person that ran the Cassandra case, 
at least the CVP DHS section of it was sitting right next to me in the advanced targeting team at the National Targeting Center when I worked there in 2011 and 2012. And we, the team and I, used to have ad hoc conversations about, you know, the case itself. And they would ask me different questions about, you know, terrorist groups operating in Lebanon or the tri-border area or the Panama Free Trade Zone or Venezuela and passports being issued to Iranians through the government of Venezuela. Those kind of things that we knew five, six, seven years ago were going on. And I was working on the Tablighi Jamaat case, the same group that led eventually to the San Bernardino shootings. And now I see in retrospect that the government, meaning the Obama administration, deliberately and intentionally went after the cases that these subject matter experts par excellence that the advanced targeting team were working on because we were getting too close to their policies and their political goals. So they came after us first and shut our cases down. Don't you think that's amazing that I would find myself in the middle of the Boston Marathon bombing, the San Bernardino shootings, the Orlando shootings, and now Project Cassandra. Yeah. Some of them you, you get around, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Attack events, jihadi terrorist attack events since 9-11, and not by my design or my own grand master plan, I found myself a first-hand eyewitness to the inner workings of all four of those cases. And the repercussions are still going on to this day. In fact, obviously, we're just finding out about some of it, especially the Hezbollah case. But when I read the report in Political, Politico, I was very careful to kind of walk through it and find connecting points, touch points, between how that case was shut down and how my case in Tablighi Shumat was shut down. Because it happened in the same time frame. Okay. And I found numerous points of contact between the two cases or the two events, which is what I call deja vu all over again. Yeah. I saw that what they were doing was saturating itself into the law enforcement arena in any case. Imagine the surreal absurdity of it. We took a vow. We, we were brought in. We got background clearances, secret clearances, and given the authorization from chief counsels of our agency to pursue these law enforcement cases to help protect our country, and then elements of our own government came down and intruded themselves into our arena and shut the cases down. And in some cases, that wasn't even enough for them. Then they came after the people, like what happened with me, and tried to ruin our life and get us either fired or arrested and thrown in jail. That's how malevolently merciless these people really were. And that's uh, and it's crazy just to think about Um our guest is Phil Haney, and the uh, his latest book is called See Something, Say Nothing. And uh, this is his second appearance on Hagman Reporter. And again, if you did miss his first appearance, I would urge everybody to go back and listen to his story. Uh, we did an interview with him, and it was uh, really uh, informative and eye-opening. And if you missed it, go back and listen for sure. Uh, kind of switching gears here, uh, Mr. Haney. 
we have a few things that I know that you wanted to get into. One is the uh, Iran protests, the background on the Iran protests. And in the first hour, we had on an expert on Iran, um, Sharin Nishat. Yeah, Sharin Nishat. And she kind of gave us some insight into what was going on over there and what the potential outcomes could be. Uh, what, what what do you see going on with these uh, Iranian protests? Well, I think it comes down to the double-edged sword of social media. The Iranian government boasted loudly about how they persuaded and coerced the American government into giving them $150 billion. Remember that? Oh, yeah. In change for the promises not to prom- not to pursue their nuclear goals and we don't even really know if that was all the money there are, there are several stories circulating that there was payments of much larger amounts of money on a on a regular basis during the Obama administration i haven't had time to follow up with that but let's just start with 150 billion dollars what was that supposed to be for it was supposed to be to help the economy of the Iranian of, of the country and to benefit the people of Iran. Remember, right? That was the agreement, the quid pro quo. You give us this money, we'll help boost our economy, and then everybody will be benefited from it. So, what did actually happen with all that money? Well, Iran's <laughs> fighting a war in Yemen right now, a proxy war against Saudi Arabia. They also have been fighting a war in Syria and supporting primarily their first-line troops that have been Hezbollah, which then leads you into Lebanon, building up the forces of Hezbollah and Lebanon for a long-term strategic goal of uh, attacking Israel. Not to mention their operations in South America, vis-à-vis their affiliation with the Venezuelan government, operating clear down into the tri-border area. So Iran has spread itself all over the world. They're a known state sponsor of terrorism. So really, to do business with them at all, after they already have been designated as a state sponsor of terrorism, is in itself an abrogation of the constitutional duty of our elected officials to put our national security first. Yes. But nonetheless, all of that money that was supposed to go to improving the life and economy of Iran was used on the military strategic and tactical purposes of the Iranian government. And when they started raising prices even more after all the supposed windfall that they bragged about constantly, then the people, I guess, it just came to them. In, in a moment of time, they realize that um, their own government has betrayed them. And there's an undercurrent of discontent all the way from 2009 with what was called the Green Revolution. But President Obama failed to support them. Remember, he said he didn't want to interfere in the affairs of Iran and make America an issue which is absurd because the Iranian government calls death to America virtually every week of the year. That's right. We're already a primary center of focus for the Iranian government. We're the great Satan, after all. 
So the policies of Obama and the rewards that he gave the Iranian government were supposed to help the Iranian people, but they didn't. And so I think with the new presidency and uh, reading the signs of, in social media with President Trump and his statements at the UN not so long ago about going after these terrorist regimes, including Iran specifically, they gain enough courage to do what they've been doing, which is rising up in somewhere between 20 and 30 cities across Iran. Now, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard leader today said that they'd put down the troublemakers and that the protests were over, but then simultaneously we're reading headlines that they're not over. But what we could do as Americans is, for example, provide a uh, secure bandwidth so that their social media can't be shut down, that they can operate uh, you know, off without the interference of the Iranian government, and that we can uh, support them in other ways to deliver themselves from the oppression of the Ayatollah regime. So I like what Trump is saying and what he's tweeting. And isn't it interesting that the uh, former Obama officials, you, can, can you summarize what their advice to President Trump has been the last few days? Yeah, what have they been two, telling? Two, two words. Shut up. Two, yeah, shut up. Two words. Shut up. The best way to help Iranians is to be quiet. Yeah. What's the title of my book? See something, say nothing, which... Uh, very there good. There you go. There is in a nutshell. That Very ideology good. that we're seeing played out on the big screen right now with the people that were in the Obama administration is summarized in the title of the book, See Something, Say Nothing. Really. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you say that they actually, they didn't use the words say nothing. They said be quiet. That's right. But it's exactly the same thing. Just ignore what you see going on over there. The cry of the people to be free from oppression, even though we're supposed to be representing the freedoms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And just be quiet. Don't say anything. And then Brennan comes out and says that Trump is missing an opportunity. Maybe it wasn't Brennan. It might have been his President Obama's former national security advisor to work with moderate elements within the Iranian government and let them transform through the political process. Really, what moderate elements are we supposed to be working with within the Iranian government? <laughs> the same ones that are part of Hezbollah, maybe? <laughs> or how about the moderates in uh, Hamas? Or how about the moderates in, I don't know, the Muslim Brotherhood? Or how about Abbas? Is he a moderate? See, we found out that there's no such thing as a moderate when President Trump acknowledged that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. That whole facade was just shattered in a moment of time, wasn't it? That's right. Good there is point. no model. Yeah, mm -hmm. good point. They had a spasm. They can't control themselves, and it was like they had an outburst of Tourette's, and they just said what they really believe, and now it's too late. They can never take it back again. And so the whole thing has been revealed as a charade all along. Because if they never intended to acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital of Jerusalem or Israel, then what basis were the supposed peace talks really built on? And what would there have been their outcome ultimately? Hmm. <laughs> Just for the 
And notice they didn't make a distinction between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem. That's right. They just flat out said Israel doesn't have the right to put a capital in Jerusalem, which also betrays their intention. Yep, you're absolutely correct with that. Very interesting. Watch the or listen to what they're saying. Actually, you know, it's it's amazing. Two Saturdays ago, I think it was the 16th of December. Um, I went to a rally in Washington on the ellipse South Lawn ellipse of the Capitol, and it was the U.S. CMO, U.S. Council of Muslim Organizations, and it was the same exact individuals that I targeted when I was still a locked active duty law enforcement officer. I saw Nihad Awad, I saw Osama Jamal, I saw the leaders of the Islamic Society of North America, I saw the leaders of the Bridgeview Mosque in Chicago, I saw the leaders of the Shura Council of New York, all standing literally on the same stage 200 yards away from that White House, and I myself is standing no more than 10 feet away from them. I've disguised myself. I wore a hat and sunglasses and a big coat. Nobody could tell who I was. I was going to ask if they gave a stink eye there. You know, when, no, when you were... They didn't know who I was. Okay. My. But I certainly knew who they were. Yeah. And it's a very surreal thing, friend, to be standing literally a step or two away from the entire concentrated leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood Network in the United States. And you mentioned Nihad Awad, CARE, of course, Council on American Islamic Relations, the unindicted co-conspirator from the Holy Land Foundation. I'd love to say that every time I mention CARE. Um, yeah, and, and the, the, these are the groups, the very same groups that Obama and yeah. and, and Huma embraced. These are the very, you've heard of the Great Purge of 2011 and 12 when the Muslim organizations petitioned the U.S. government to remove all of the so-called derogatory information about Islam out of the training materials of the FBI or the DOD or DHS, you know, all the law enforcement agencies, and they did it. They removed this information out of the law enforcement training courses. And not only removed it, but then went after the poor souls that had been teaching the classes who were only doing it because it was part of their collateral duty. They were ordered to do it. I'm not saying that they didn't want to do it, but they didn't just come in and tell the, the, the command structure that they were going to start teaching a class that was had information that was derogatory about Islam. No, they were teaching the courses for law enforcement and military personnel in order to understand the ideology of Islam, the strategy and tactics of it. And they came in and they removed all that information. That was in 2011 and 12. But the first great purge happened three years before then, which I also talk about in the book. And that is when they ordered myself to remove all of the derogatory information out of the system on the Muslim Brotherhood Network operating in the United States. That happened in 2009. So I stand literally two steps away from the very same leaders of these Muslim Brotherhood organizations and watch them rail against America and President Trump's decision to acknowledge Jerusalem as a capital. Thinking in my mind, you can imagine, as a cop, 
Why on earth are these people even allowed to have any voice in the public arena at all when we have already irrefutably proven that they are affiliated with Hamas and that their goal is to subvert the Constitution and replace it with Sharia law? Exactly. And by the way, folks, please, get a hold of us. If you haven't done so already, see something, say nothing. Great book, 240 pages. It's a great read. You can get it on Amazon, WND Books. Uh, but, uh, see something, say nothing. Philip Haney is our guest. He's a, an, an American patriot hero in my book. Um, a whistleblower, for sure. I, I would say whistleblower, right. And or a lamplighter. And what, to your last point, uh, Mr. Haney that you just talked about, uh, look at what they're doing in, in Europe and, and from Germany to France and all these countries, these forced migrations. Now, uh, they have the, you know, the, the Sharia patrols, the no-go zones, the assaults on police officers, the huge increase in oh, violent just, crimes. Uh, Germany's that, government. conspiracy theory nonsense. Come on now. So the government of Germany actually issued a study uh, that they just released the findings on that showed a huge increase in violent crimes from sexual assaults and rapes and other assaults. Um, and uh, the numbers were 10.4% before the crisis of, that's the violence. I don't know what metrics they use or to up to 92.1% at the, at the uh, top of the migrant influx. And the German government was blaming it on the, uh, the migrants that they brought in. But yes, they are trans, it's the clash of the cultures is what they're going for. And it is working in Europe. I know we only have a few minutes left, Mr. Haney. So I want to make sure we touch on this major trends to look for in 2018 in the social, political, in law enforcement arenas. The social arena, there's a, a catalyst, a trigger for that, and that is immigration. Because after all, aren't we told that the reason why we need immigration is to become more diverse and inclusive mm-hmm. so that we won't be racist and we'll be more fair, etc. So there's a social arena, and, and the catalyst for that the indicator of progress, if you will, or the battleground, if you want to put it that way, is immigration reform. In the political arena, the battleground, the trigger or the catalyst is remarkably our relationship with Israel and or the designation of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And the third arena is, is the law enforcement-military. And the trigger for that one, the catalyst that you can see action in that arena, is the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Why did I name those three? Immigration reform, designation of Israel, uh, Jerusalem as the capital, and the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood. Because if we address those, those are the litmus, litmus test indicators that if we get those policies right, Everything else will fall in place. Why Jerusalem and why Israel? Because in the social arena, in the political arena, and in the law enforcement arena, there's an underlying principle that I'm hoping and encouraging my fellow Americans to grasp. And that is that the battle that we're in, the conflict that we face, the challenge that we are dealing with, is more fundamental even than the Constitution itself, which is really a legal brief describing the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that should be self-evident, that was endowed by our Creator. So what we're actually talking about is more fundamental than the Constitution, and what it is is sovereignty, the right for a people to choose a form of government that they will live under. And the progressive leftists, the Antifa and the global 
socialist movement is a natural ally with the global Islamic movement because both of them are seeking the same thing, which is to alter or abolish the current form of government we have here and replace it with one is more suitable to their worldview, which in simpler terms is an assault on our sovereignty. They intend to replace our form of government with their own definition of what is sovereign and impose it on us by force if necessary. So, to everyone that's listening, there will be one of those three arenas that you will find yourself most drawn to. And my encouragement for the year 2018 and beyond is for you to master whatever subject that it might be that you're drawn to, whether it has to do with the in the arena of immigration, whether it has to do in the arena of our political process and our sovereignty and right to have relationships with other countries as we see fit, and or having the sense to designate organizations that have stated purpose to destroy our form of government and not to mention us if they can and find that arena that you're best suited for and then become a master of your subject but that whatever you do you be able to literally go back and cite chapter and verse from the Constitution just like you can do with the Bible to chapter and verse for example in a nutshell, why is Sharia law illegal in the United States? It's not a First Amendment issue. That's a false argument. The issue with Sharia law in America, why it's illegal, is because of Article 6 of the Constitution, that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and that the judges of each state shall be bound thereby. The First Amendment is just that. It's an amendment. So what is it an amendment to? The Constitution, as originally written. That means that the First Amendment does not supersede the original articles of the Constitution. It means simply that the First Amendment is built on top of the structure that was put in place by the original Constitution, including Article 6. So rather than debating whether or not Sharia law should be allowed in America because of religious liberty, look at Article 6. And that's the challenge that we face in the days, months, and years ahead is to become more capable and more fluent in what I call the language of the Constitution and take the arguments out of the subjective arena, which is like Humpty Dumpty. Words mean exactly what I want them to mean, no more and no less. And to see what I mean, let's talk about the people who say, no walls, no borders. Down with the administration, resist. Well, actually, the question you can ask them is, if you believe in sanctuary cities and you want to go to one, how do you know when you've arrived at a sanctuary city? <laughs> Good point. Well, It's called city limit. So they actually believe in borders very passionately. It's just the way they define borders, just like Humpty Dumpty. Words mean or borders mean exactly what they want them to mean. So you will never win arguments in the subjective arena because they change the meaning all the time. And so what you have to do is like take the clicker, the TV clicker, and change the channel and put it on the Constitution channel and become a master of that. Whatever position you take in the social, the political, or the law enforcement arena, make sure that you found that on a constitutional principle and you will become immovable 
in within the structure of the government that we live under. That would be my encouragement to people for the year 2018. What to look for? I think President Trump is refining his political skills and that he's going to continue to fulfill his constitutional obligation to put America first and that by that I mean defend our borders. The two primary responsibilities of the federal government are A, to prevent or protect us from foreign invasion and B, to prevent outbreaks of domestic violence in the states. Did you know that? Constitutionally, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, has our federal government doing that been doing that in recent times? No, no. I would say not. Nope. So, we are so far from the center of the of the principles that our country was founded on that when President Trump brings us back into alignment, it seems radical, doesn't it? It it, it does, but it's a return to normalcy, a return to the where it should be. Yeah, it's like muscles that haven't been used for a long time. Excuse me, I'm going to have to plug my computer in. You know what, Phil? We only have we only have a minute left, my brother. Sorry for the no, no problem, Phil. We're we're out of time. We only yeah. got one minute left before the end of yeah. the broadcast, and um, I know we have more that we can cover. We'll we, have to bring you back on. Man, we could talk to you for like days. I'm Absolutely. telling you, this time goes crazy. We've got uh, we've got about exactly one minute left, Mr. Haney. Um, and I just want to say it's thank you. For a great price, friend. These things, you know, the Bible counsels us over and over to seek wisdom. And this is the pearl of great price. And that wisdom is more, more precious and more valuable than any gold or silver. Amen. And in each Amen. time, so it would be the other thing I would encourage Ask the Lord for the wisdom, the knowledge, and the understanding that we need to discern the times that we live in and to not only discern them, not be freaked out by it, but to redeem it. We're called. The reason the Lord shows us things to come is not to scare us. It's to help us be prepared and to share that knowledge with others, to encourage them that as the storm draws nigh, you don't have to be terrified by the storm, that you can find the safe place. In that storm, find the shalom in the middle of the storm, and be safe from it. Amen. That's the whole of it all. Phil Haney, I, I, you are such a great man, a, a patriot, a hero of mine, and uh, just a tremendous guest. Thank you so much for your your gracious uh, uh, your gift of time tonight, your graciousness. Absolutely. And please, uh, please come back and, and visit with us some more. It's always a pleasure to have you. I'd love and thank you, everyone, for listening. Lord right. bless. God bless. God bless you too. That's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, what a way to close! Uh, a great man, Phil Haney, uh, and send him an email too. You know, just let him know that you really appreciate him, Phil Haney. Uh, I'm not even sure where to find him, email wise, but jihadwatch.org. I don't know about the email. Yeah, but but. but.